Hello, Tom. Hello, Heron. So, you've had a few minutes to think. Any topics? Oh, this Anything is, you want to float? Well, it's something I just wanted to add to something from last week. After we got off, I started thinking about it, about that thing about crying babies and everything. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, and I realized that it's not all babies crying that do that to me. There's, oh. there's some that have this, this what I can only say is a, is a kind of piercing quality <laughs> that, that just affects me to the core. It's yeah. just it's terrifying. There are other babies crying that don't bother me at all. In fact, it elicit that motherly instinct. I want to go, oh, <laughs> you know. Yes. So it's something in the quality of the voice uh, that does it to me. I think as a child gets older, it gets more annoying for me. A small crying baby typically does not have the gusto of like... Yeah, a- yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, a three-year-old how, how, having a tantrum. Oh well, that's that's not even the same thing. A, a three-year-old having a tantrum uh, doesn't bother me. I just walk away from it. Fair enough. <laughs> you know? No, I'm talking about babies. You know, like yes. under six months. Say, huh. You know, and and there's some of them that just there's this piercing quality that is is really very strange. I remember the the first time I experienced it and thinking how. God, what this is so? Why am I feeling this way? You know, it just was so obvious and so mm. strong. You know, mm. so it's a good thing I became aware of it. <laughs> so, when was that first experience? Uh, it was with my son. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, my wife, as I said, had hypothesized that this would be the case if we had children, and yeah, it is because I know my father suffered from it yeah. as well. I think it's not uncommon. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting, but but um, well, yeah, yeah. It, it that's what it humbles me because when I read in the paper, you know, or, or someplace about some guy who murdered his girlfriend's child, mm-hmm. you know, and I think, you know, shit, that could have been me, <laughs> you know. Mm. I, mean, I I know that's that's the the kind of impulse. It, it I mean, if, if you had less, you know, self consciousness, you know, I mean. I could I could see myself having done something like that. You know, it, mm. it's scary. Yes. I mean, for me, it was at a very early age. I must have been about four. And I was left alone for some reason with a little baby that would have been, as you say, probably younger than six months. And I realized, I think there was a small wooden hammer nearby. <laughs> and I realized... You and were the, looking at the hammer and, the and interesting considering thing, all the possibilities. The thing, interesting <laughs> thing about it was even at age four, I caught myself doing it. I realized yeah. that... And I really... It's interesting because I guess a lot of people think of their early childhood in terms of images, you know, and, yeah. I, and the ideas and the motivations behind them are oftentimes, you know, lost in time. Yeah. But this really actually chilled me because I realized at a young age, and I'd had, it must have been, must have been after, well, I couldn't have been after we went to the UK. I'm not really sure how it fits together in time. I might have been a little older. I might have been about six. But yeah, just that memory of realizing that I had to control this urge that otherwise would, you know, lead to uh, yeah. serious detriment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's scary. Like I say, it was humbling. Does the um, does the terrible uh, the what the Bulger case in the UK? I think one of the kids was maybe the the boy that was killed was Bulger. He was 
I think very maybe three or four. He was very young, and the kids that killed him were nine. I oh, think those ones you mean that they abducted him from a mall? Right? Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm vaguely familiar. And with that. yeah, now they've given them new identities in the UK. And one of them has gone on to well, actually, he was he found they found child pornography on his computer, uh-uh. which put him back in jail. But they've gone through three separate identities because obviously the tabloids like to expose who they really are sure, now. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah just, it's, it's just scary, man. I mean, <laughs> how yes. much are we in? What what is this illusion of control that we think we have? <laughs> yes, I'm not sure if you read my Facebook feed at uh, all yeah i do well for the benefit of folks listening in let's avoid the the punchline associated with this particular story but as i was walking into work one day i found a body in the bushes oh yeah okay yeah you saw that on my facebook yeah, page yeah, yes right, yeah so yeah it was an interesting experience because <laughs> it, for folks listening i'll tell the story heron's obviously heard it before but I was walking in, and I was walking along a path, and I just looked to one side, and there was this... Originally, I thought, it's something wrapped up in carpet, and then, no, it's a body. Like, it's a human body yeah. in, the in the bushes, facing down, yeah. wearing um, a blue... He had his legs crossed, which was really curious, and he was wearing a blue coverall hoodie, and I assumed it kind of... It had to be male. I mean, this is what was interesting, because I was talking... There was a woman on the phone about, you know, 20, maybe 15 to 20 feet away from the body. And she asked me to describe the body to her while she was on the phone with the police. Hmm. And she said, is he 30? And I said, I have no way of establishing how old this human was. I mean, he was basically completely covered face down in the bushes. He looked like he was in some process of rigor mortis. He wasn't moving at all. He was very, very still. And I think that was probably the most (laughs) eerie thing about the whole experience. And then as I was talking to the woman on the phone and she was on the phone with the police, she said to me, I have to go for my bus. And I said, look, I'll wait here. But then I started to realize there were a number of possibilities that I just hadn't fathomed through this experience. So I uh, went to the woman. I said, have you, like, approached the body? And she said no. And she was absolutely petrified. Another woman walked past at this point and, like, backed away from it as well in horror. Yeah, yeah. Well, I thought, you know, I walked up to the body probably a foot or two away and yelled as loudly as I could, sir... And the body rolled over. It was some (laughs) black guy with bloodshot eyes, and he waved at me. And it was from that. He was just taking a nap. Well, (laughs) probably a very strong nap. He was out on a run, and he just got tired and thought, I'll just lay down right here. Yeah, he was a jogger. That's what he was. (laughs) Yes. But the funny thing about it was, he was. I mean, I watched his chest for about two, three minutes. Yeah to see any kind of motion. I was looking for mm. any kind of motion because that would have basically, but it was, it was. Well, if you're it, looking at the chest, that's the wrong place to look because they do that kind of breathing through the belly. Well, the whole thing was resting on yeah. a bush. So basically yeah, any see. movement yeah. would have, you know, 
so yes, it was a very to, to go from dead to living in an instant. <laughs> the Twilight Zone. It was very, very, and I just kept on walking. I like chuckled to myself and kept on walking. Yeah. I knew, really? Well, there was no point there. Yeah, right. Yeah, there was no point staying there. Yeah, you know, the, oh, yeah. the police would have shown up, perhaps. And I mean, really, I think I actually rescued the guy from being arrested because the police wouldn't have messed around with him. They would have had him in cuffs and yeah, cast sure. him away. Yeah, yeah. So well, uh, she was. Let's, let's be fair. She was already on the phone. You didn't rescue him. Well, I guess you did. She, that, she wasn't going to do anything. She yeah. would have called the police. Yeah, would have that's right. Up and that's right. Okay. Him. Yeah, you the guy who walked up and yeah. I'm surprised you didn't poke him with a stick. <laughs> you see, my view with these circumstances. It's funny actually because my thought initially was actually potentially to take a photograph of the circumstances. There you go. Because, what the hell do they have smartphones for? This well, I was deal. thinking about that, but then I was thinking that this actually is not. And my wife has reinforced that this isn't what good society does. You don't go and take photographs of dead bodies. No, like, you have Google Glass to do. Yeah, that for exactly. You, you don't have to worry them. about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. It was a really, it really made me feel very good. Like, it was an amazingly positive feeling. I guess because the adrenaline was building up for yeah. waiting for the police and dealing with yeah, this the whole thing with an unpleasant beginning to the day. Yeah. <laughs> and instead, it was, a, a, you know, obviously slightly intoxicated by rolling over <laughs> yeah. and waving at me, and it was like, fine. But yeah, it's, it's funny. It's funny those circumstances. Because it, um, yeah, I mean, my only real experience with death has come with my wife's grandmother. Mm. And that was a circumstance where really the only way we could identify her was with her hands. And it was very clear that she was dead. I mean, it was really, we were looking to identify her humanity more than her form. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it was, I was... I guess on some level, my chemistry was just bracing myself for dealing with these kind of circumstances. It is funny because the woman who walked around kept on walking, and it is one of these circumstances. I mean, I've done a citizen's arrest before, and it's one of those circumstances where you just think perhaps there's a group of a population that just wouldn't interact in these circumstances. Oh, yeah, I think a great number of people uh, yeah. just would rather not be involved, thank yeah. you. I'd be very hesitant unless I really thought that what I was doing is was actually making some sort of significant contribution. Otherwise, I wouldn't get involved with stuff. Yeah, I typically volunteer. I mean, this is my wife's critique of me that, you know, in the most crazy circumstances. Yeah, and you never really know, you know, especially if it's divided, you know, who who's the I mean, you maybe you're just trying to stop it, but I mean, sometimes you have to make a choice. <laughs> and who knows, you know, yes. whether you make the right choice or not. But I guess if somebody's molesting a five-year-old, that that's yeah, good. yeah. See, if if there was a case where there was something where I could really make a difference, I, I think I I don't think I know I wouldn't hesitate because I've been involved in situations where when you know, actually, I do better in in disasters than I do in normal life. Yes. You know, I, when everyone else is going crazy, I get real calm. <laughs> you know, I shut up, I look around, I see what's yeah. going on, I make a decision, and I do what I got to do. Yeah. It's, it's just dealing with the asshole in the old Hyundai in front of me yeah. that, that I can't deal with. <laughs> when, you, when you went through your military training, yeah. 
Were yeah. you, I mean, was that part of your military training associated with how to respond? Oh, no, your... no, no. I think this is just something innate. Mm. Uh, the first time I know, the first time I ever had that happen was when uh, in my, I had this old Volkswagen bus and I was in Laguna Beach uh-huh. and uh, there's some hills there. And I was driving down this very steep hill and my brakes went out. Oh, I was no. going like, 40 miles an hour down. and I mean this yeah. was a really steep hill and yeah. at the bottom of the hill was uh, Pacific Coast Highway and I'm, I'm in a, this old VW van heading down this hill with no brakes so, yes. uh, but you know it only took a, a second it didn't even take a second to start downshifting yes. you know pull up the, the emergency brake yes. and shut off the engine and by the time I got, I, you know, I was still going when I got to the bottom of the hill. Luckily, there was no traffic coming. I was yeah. able to make a right-hand turn without <laughs> the thing tipping over. So I was yes. slow enough to pull that off. And there was a gas station just right, you know, like 10 yards after I turned. I pulled in, coasted into the gas station. Yeah. And, uh, and they fixed it. And, uh, you know, I was there a couple hours, but... Uh, but I mean, for a couple of seconds, I figured, "Shit, I'm dying. This is it. This is over." Yeah. But but again, once it happened, everything was like in slow motion. Of course, yes. You know, it was amazing. It's just sort of like in the movies, you know. Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure what the concoction is, but the times usually when I've hit my head really bad, everything slows down like that. Hmm. And I think it's usually the do same. you do that often? I I. <laughs> I have this um, amazing ability to bang my head against things. Oh, really? I stubbed you know, my toe just the other day for the <laughs> first time in a long time, and damn, oh. that, that hurts. I have seen stars. Then you've seen stars. You know oh, what that yes. is? Yeah, see, I only had that happen once in my life, and I was totally blown away. It was just like in the cartoons. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, I've had to it's, – it's funny, actually, because I guess I'm, I'm tall with a, with a big head anyway. Yeah, which means yeah. That, Things that are going to hit me in the head usually either come just below eye height or just. Sorry, yeah, but just listen, above the idea is that, and... that adult human beings over a lifetime be, should be compensating for this. <laughs> you, know, you, you need to pay attention more. I do wonder about that, actually. I have this tendency for people to walk into me. And it's a really strange thing. This isn't interesting. People walk into you. Yes, how I, interesting. I wore. I wore uh, an obnoxious Hawaiian shirt today. I used to wear a Hawaiian shirt every Friday. And now <laughs> Netflix has a company Hawaiian shirt, which I now wear a war today. And I think I'm going to continue to wear it. I was the only one in a company of, you know, 800 plus wearing mine today. Actually, that's not true. Someone else had, I saw it towards the end of the day, someone else was wearing the company Hawaiian shirt. But um, no, it's a funny, it's a phenomenon being tall, but also being. I don't know. I don't know what qualities make people walk into me. And I, Gravity, I, probably. I try to move out <laughs> of the way and stuff, and people just still will walk into me. And it's the, it's the scariest thing because I do try to move out of the way as much as possible, but people will still – I think it's part of it is the um, – perhaps the smartphone generation, perhaps the – I think – a lot of people just kind of tune things out with their eyes in a strange way. It's very strange that these people are actually on the roads as well. But, yeah, it is a, it is a phenomenon. Hmm. And I noticed today, because I was wearing this obnoxious wine shirt, that it happened less. 
but it still happened. In fact, it was funny. I was thinking to myself. Well, you're no, now your job is to start. Today. Yeah, now your job is to start experimenting and and see if you can't just uh, figure this phenomena out. Yeah. I think that sounds fascinating. Of course, it's completely out of the question that you might be walking into them. I'm sure that's probably the case. Well, that's I don't know. I mean, that was what I was thinking today, was that the number of circumstances it happens to me, it seems to indicate that it's probably... I mean, I... The, the well, that's what I was thinking. Is it just, just statistically, my first thought would be, well, no, you're walking into them. Yes, the but, but is you're, really it's not spatially. you that's doing. Now, that's the thing. It's not you that's doing it. It's your yes. it's your uh, monkey operating system. Yes, my moss needs rebooting. That's right. That's right. Well, it's it's missing. No, it needs its firmware upgra- updated. Yeah, believe me, it does. <laughs> I need an oil change, and I need my firmware updated. Definitely. Yes. Yeah, I think it's. Um, that's interesting, though. No, but I mean, this is yeah. this whole idea of of people walking into other people and how how that gets again how we put a story on that and 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 how that whole thing operates. You know, I suspect a lot of the shit. I, I'm I'm not. I know a lot of the stu- stupid shit in my life is stuff I have done, and then the repercussions of it come to me, and it feels like, oh shit, how did that happen? But it yes. was all my own fucking creation from these sort of unconscious patterns that have been in there. Yeah. And how is it that we're able to sometimes see through that? You know, and other times just be the fucking blind robots. <laughs> I've heard in other companies, in fact, I'll name the company, I've heard in Microsoft that various employees will wear bells on their body to alleviate this phenomenon. And I think it's actually probably something to do with the the geographical layouts of the offices. Geographical is probably not right. The topological layouts of <laughs> oh, the so offices. Oh, so specifically we're talking about people bumping into one another. I think basically if you have a series of um, oblique angles in the interactive space where people just appear um, at speed or you know, yeah. there are various I think there are various geometries which make it more oh, sure, yeah, yeah. interesting particularly <laughs> when you're moving around a confined space. Well the I'm thing- thinking about in high school you know, mm-hmm. in between classes there, there's all yeah. these people going down these corridors and everybody's yeah. bumping into everybody but it's not particularly odd they're not bumping into it's everybody is calculating distances and movements and stuff and they're brushing by and touching each other but uh it's not perceived as some inadvertent thing it's sort of like everybody is just in that space dealing with it but you're talking about something different than that or i'm talking about at least at least my arm if not my chest being contacted i mean i've not been winded probably for about a month but in some circumstances winded, you mean hit so hard that it's yes really yeah wow well of course you hang around with those fucking language monkeys all the time you're bound That's to see it. see that almost never happens to me anymore high school I, it happens. I hang, I hang <laughs> with a particular caliber of language monkeys. yeah high, high class language monkeys yeah. well-educated language monkeys yeah. well-programmed like well in some spheres very well-programmed language monkeys. well yes yeah it's but they still have the same course. firmware that you do, though. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon, and I will report back periodically associated with my findings. Hmm. I think in most part, people, yes, 
It's a phenomena. I will talk more about it at another time. Yeah. So I have a number of topics in front of me. And I have really one more, actually. Oh, okay. It's just a very, a very quick one. It's just a complaint that mm-hmm. I am now getting uh, spam that's uh, being generated by something that's taking my Facebook friends and sending me email f- from what appears to be a friend saying, hey, man, check out this. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it looks very authentic, like a quick note from someone on yeah. my Facebook mailing is telling me to look at this site and tell them what, <laughs> what I think. Mm-hmm. You know, I've gotten like five of these now in the last two weeks. H- have you seen this? I get all kinds of that shit. I really? just, I've um, never seen it from Facebook. This is no, yeah. I get it from Facebook. I get it from LinkedIn. I think yeah, yeah. They, the whole phenomena associated with these, um, it is very, <laughs> very, very strange. There are parts which are actually part of legitimate businesses, which I think is the most creepy part of it. So some of it is actually coming directly from information that Google farms and these kind of things because the interaction between your Google searches and Facebook is now very, very strange. So I will see topics that I've never, you know, interacted with previously. For example, should I raise it? Yes, I will. When my wife was away two times ago, I decided to, you know, get some purchases, evening wear purchases for her. I've never put anything into Facebook associated with this. All my Facebook ads mysteriously all trickled down change to this stuff. Then there was another iteration of the change associated with it. And I actually found it really, it reminded me that these things that I think are discrete articles associated with searching in one place and then using Facebook are in fact completely integrated in some fundamental sense. And I think the phenomena is increasingly, I have friends and I should start doing this. I have coworkers that maintain seven different Google accounts for exactly this purpose to basically to identify, you know, stuff. And no, no, it's like a shredder for your life. Uh You have it. It's so, that basically the piecemeal of all your interactions cannot sum total equal you. And the problem is basically all your interactions are sum totally equaling you, and then you can be particularly... And the thing is that it's used for nefarious purposes, which is what I find particularly well, It's just striking. annoying. It's a waste of exactly. my time. Exactly. I don't give a shit why they're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they ought to yeah. all be in jail. Well, that's my view as well, but unfortunately, <laughs> it's not going to happen anytime no, soon. No, 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 and if they don't, then people will start killing them. Well, <laughs> you know, the, you well, see, well, who was that guy, the, the, the Unabomber, right? Yeah. We'll have somebody going after these assholes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is, a, it is a phenomena associated with... Did uh, we just, or did I just say something really dangerous? Am I going to be on the list now for talking about bombing? I don't I mean, know. Really, because this is just classic uh, kind of talk they would pick up on, I would think. You see, I listen to, I occasionally listen to libertarian podcasts, and the libertarian yeah. podcasts are considerably more graphic. Really? Okay. Is, right. when, when my wife was away with her parents, she went to the Reagan Library because my, my, sorry, when my wife was away, did I say that right? When my wife was away with her parents, they went to the Reagan Library because her father in particular Actually, my mother, too, are, are big fans of Reagan. And um, one of the things they brought back 
one of the things my wife gave me was a copy of the US Constitution, which I had never actually read in full. I'd skimmed parts of it, but I actually read it last night. And it is, it is interesting because these libertarians, you know, are very gung-ho about the Constitution, but I don't think they've ever actually read it in full. <laughs> it is very strange to me, the notion that you could take a document <coughs> and in some way it represents a, a historical document. Well, how about or, like the Bible? Well, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But the thing that strikes me about it is that, particularly associated with the right to bear arms, I mean, really, shame. When I listen to these libertarian podcasts, I get really angry because if these people actually did what they said that they were going to do, it would be a really considerably more interesting place than it is currently. (laughs) The whole nature that they're constantly talking about amassing vast quantities of weapons and bullets and, you know, you've got to go out training, you know, two weeks out of a month to make sure that you're absolutely ready for when, you know, when the militia come. And then they join these militia organisations and all they end up doing is just eventually voting Republican. They don't actually... (laughs) Well, no, sometimes they blow up a, a government building. Yeah, but the, that's the thing, rare. But, but uh, you yeah, know. The, thing, the thing about blowing up the government building, it, it, there was a phenomenon when I was in the UK, and this actually bends into a topic that I wanted to talk about last recording, but unfortunately my throat was getting hoarse and I was feeling a little under the weather. I've, I have had a long-standing hatred. Hatred, I think, is the right term for the royal family in the UK. They irritate the bejesus out of me, and really it stopped me from going to the UK for probably about five years when I kind of reached adulthood. I reached the UK, I think, when I was 23, maybe 23. Listen, you're not an adult till you're about 45. I understand. (laughs) I've still got a few years. You're beginning to approach this. The thing that struck me about... As soon as you leave London, you're less under the, uh, you know, less under the formality of the royal family. But it's interesting, actually, because my uncle actually works for Prince Charles. So I have a family member who is very well revered in the family because he works for Prince Charles. To the point where he actually knows a lot of Prince Charles's dirty jokes. Apparently, Prince Charles is just a degenerate. Like I mean, like most male language monkeys. Well, except except <laughs> yeah. he's an unfettered. You see well, most, he's rich and, and he yeah. can do anything he wants, so he doesn't yeah. have to hide it. Or well, see, he has to yeah. hide it, but yeah. Most well, no, most men, even wealthy men, that you know behave the way Charles does, at least get slapped on occasion. But that's like a federal offence in the UK. So you've got to. The airs and graces that this man <laughs> has not because it is part well, of... Why it, isn't this general knowledge? I think the problem is that the media has always liked the ability to sell papers with the royals in them. There are a, there are a number of publications in the UK that are fundamentally Republican or, or in favour of the Republic versus the political party here. 
But I think in general, it really stuns me that the royal family is still in existence. It's like a historical well, anomaly. Yeah, well, it is. There are a couple of them. They're, st- they're not the only one. There's a couple others, but they're all mostly, well, as this one. This one isn't, it's not, a, it's not about royalty. It's about their money. That's no, the issue. I, think- I mean, because the, ser- it's the, the, the queen, you know, is nothing. She doesn't, she's a ceremony. Oh no! But but it's the money the family owns. No, she she well through her representative in Australia removed a prime minister in 1975. She does actually have oh, power okay. in some very real sense. The interesting thing is that uh, in terms of the money, the money is very curious. So basically, they don't pay tax. They are supposed to nominally now consider potentially paying tax if they want to. And a lot of their financial <laughs> transactions are actually really very, very curious. But they are, they're completely removed. I mean, it's the notion of a divine right to rule on some level has been, you know, chiseled away by, yeah. you know, constitution or what have you. But the, in practicality, that's all that's there. You know? Yeah. I have more respect. I mean, we've talked previously about the King of Jordan, or at least the the late King of Jordan. The current King of Jordan hasn't had to do this. The late King of Jordan had to defend his royalty with firearms. He was shot at. Yeah, that, that's a bad bullets, way. Yeah, these kinds of things. Yeah, that I have a little bit more respect for. Oh, really? than, and my view is: How do you unseat a monarchy? The only way to unseat a monarchy. I would say, seems to be historically to, you know, declare yourself a monarch and then get into some, you know, feudal conflict. No, you just ignore them. That's the easiest way, is just don't pay well, any attention to them and, yes. cut, and cut off the funds. Well, yes, <laughs> yeah. But the problem is that they're just organized crime figures. I mean, that's basically, if you look for people that have similar behavioral characteristics to the monarchy, yeah. you have Tony Soprano. I mean, you only have these kind of examples. You well, have, but you that's know, most governments, isn't it? It's not just the... I mean, that's not... So the that, thing that's that power structures. Me, the thing that strikes me about, for example, Iran, which doesn't seem to be talked about in this country, is irrespective of how, you know, lampooned their leaders are, they still have a finite amount of time associated with election and re-election, so, I mean, there's still a kind of democratic element as part of that. And what's curious is even, even you know, they're ruling, they're supposedly ruling. Well, I mean, I've got to stop you, Wayne, because this whole idea of democracy is somehow some fucking answer. Remember, I'm not saying- well, no, but you're, you're saying it's, you know, it's okay because there's, it's, it's some democratic aspect to it i mean well I, the, 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 so what <laughs> you know they got a bunch of language monkeys over there <laughs> you know yeah, you don't want just, that look and that's what happened in egypt yeah you know well, is they let them egypt vote is, and they're a bunch of believers a bunch of goddamn believers language monkeys so what you have the you have the military that's predominantly funded by the u.s kick out the people that they voted uh, for yeah i i don't know no, but I'd want to. Does kick that them seem any more legitimate than voting for a group of people that aren't particularly well liked over here? I mean, that's what well, the these are. These are no, you're right. These are fundamental. This is a fundamental issue. Yeah. I mean, whether or not people are even competent to vote, and whether the voting isn't just a goddamn joke. Yeah. You know. I mean, again, the, if 
It's, it's like putting band-aids on a festering body. There's no end to that. I think a, the thing a new that, system is needed. Yes. Or just moving perpetually. I mean, basically, it's interesting, actually, because the effect of these things... We've talked previously about the effect that Obama has on me, for example. <laughs> so the effect of these things is only embodied when it is impressioned upon you in some fashion. That's what I found about living in the UK, actually. I really loved it because it was just a, a bunch of eccentrics and bad weather and <laughs> greasy food. and What more books. could you want? Exactly. Yeah. It's like I'd written down my top ten reasons for living and it was in a country. So, yeah, I mean, my, my view is um, it's interesting how these things periodically irritate me. Yeah. But I think they've, they've gone back in their hole now, the little babies. Well, that's, I, again, that's it, to me that you don't like the metamorphosis model, but I'm not suggesting you give up your models either. I'm just saying keep this one in your back pocket. It explains a lot of stuff. There are reasons for all these old ways and behaviors, that, you know, but those are the part of the old world. There's no point in... You know, and fucking with them, really, and trying to talk about it or understand it or any other damn thing, at least as far as I can see. That's just part of the the caterpillar. Let it so, go. So, okay, so what happened in Egypt and what have you, that is really a, a I mean, is that progress in any sense in your Yeah, I don't, know, I don't know. My, my sympathies are, I guess, with the army. I, I don't I think Islam fundamental any fundamental belief system is mm-hmm. is inherently dangerous and going to end badly. It's going to be bad no matter what way we go. But it's the, interesting actually because I, I it's not that I'm in any way in favor of the Muslim Brotherhood, but I think they're basically they have historically been and manifested in Al Qaeda, which is an offshoot of um, yeah, they're true Amin believers. Al- That's the Zikawi's problem. Early, <laughs> early. Well, you see, but the, the army instead is just is a, just trying to be pragmatic. No, it's paid by for by the U.S. Well, that's it's basically well, no, but I mean on their U.S. interests. Yeah, I know, but I'm answer. saying on their, their their motivation is that it's just sensible thing to do. Here we can get all this money and get rid of all these other assholes. <laughs> Yes, that want to take away our power and our money. That's right. Yes. <laughs> but the, yes. so the question is, do you want to be ruled by them or do you want to be ruled by Islam? But I don't even think the I mean, I think basically the information that you have associated with the Muslim Brotherhood, although it's named the Muslim Brotherhood. Well, no, I understand that. I know I've talked to people from over there, actually. And, yeah. and I understand. But it, it, again, it's it's not monolithic. It, exactly. It, it, that's the whole point. But the and what it was looking like is that again the, the extremists tend to take over. Well, it's interesting actually because the term extremist here the ones who want to make an Islamic state. Well, actually, I mean, my understanding is that Egypt is defined as an Islamic state, whether it's a secular, <laughs> whether it is or not. Yeah, I mean, that's. I, I think that's. <laughs> You know, the yeah. Coptic well, Christians, unfortunately, are my yeah. well, I mean, that's exactly, I think, so. what the, the Muslim Brotherhood is about, though, is about changing that to make it real, to make it a real Muslim state. Well, I mean, the, the, the folks that I've heard in terms of young folk talking about typically, you know, they, their parents or what have you that have been yeah. members of the Muslim Brotherhood are not 
are not fundamentalists in terms of their yeah. views. And I, I think actually... And I've talked to people like that. I yeah. understand what you're saying. It's not monolithically one way or another. Exactly. It's just they're... The, and I understand that. And I have no problem with people like that. What I'm talking about is that other end of the spectrum, though. Mm. And that scares me. Just as the Christian fuckers scare me here. But does the military... Whoever controls the military, does that make you feel that much better? Um, yeah. Yeah. And mm. it's not about the military. I don't care how. It's just, I, I would take almost... Yeah, I think the mil. See, I don't have... I guess I don't really have a prejudice against the military. I just see the military as an organized... An, or, a guy, an organization that has weapons. <laughs> you know? But their organization is maybe more useful than their weaponry. The weapons are used at times, but there are other things that the military does, like in disaster relief and stuff. Uh, well, I mean, my my perspective on that, and again, I have a relatively negative view associated with the military in almost all capacities, because I think the way in which you respond to disasters is very different than a role in combat. And I think the subtleties, particularly, I mean, when I see the military used in disaster relief, uh, Katrina comes to mind. I'm usually really very concerned by the perspective that their notion is to create a degree of law and order rather than save human lives fundamentally. Well, that's and, policy. That can be changed. I don't, that's not inherent in the structure. That's just bad policy. No, I actually think it's associated. If you have an organized form where basically structure and order is eulogized and ingrained in the group, then when they see a chaotic group of starving people who are half-drowned trying to go towards food and get the food that they need... Their response is That's immediately your going assumption. to you know, you, as a, you, And I agree with you. You take a normal brain-damaged language monkey and put him in that situation, and it's not going to work. That's why I say the only real hope for the future is an enlightened population. Mm. Because if, if you put... I don't care how ideal a structure you put in place, it's not going to work with the kind of humans that we have on this planet now. Mm. Especially believers. Yes, and until we until we change that fundamental thing, I, I think the rest of it. Well, it's good we can experiment with all these things, but I don't think any of that's really going to work. I, I think the real solution is a new species. <laughs> but I'm quite optimistic that we're moving along very nicely. <laughs> How's your wine glass? Um, you know, by golly, it appears to be empty. Very good. Let's let me stop and restart the recorder. Okay. And you do what you need to do. Okay. <laughs> I'm here. So, um, speaking of language monkeys, I received. Well, actually, I didn't. My wife came home from uh, Southern California, and pasted to our door was the following letter. I may actually have to cut some of this, but I'll, I'll see how it goes right out. This was pasted to your front door in handwritten? or what? No, no, it's, it's a printout, but it's oh, okay. not actually signed. Okay. It reads, Re, lease violation warning. As you know, there are various rules, regulations, and standards that you have agreed to follow by living as a member of this community. 
Part of this agreement specifically addresses the pet addendum that provides for regulations and requirements of authorised pets at our apartment complex. Please be reminded of section 18 of your lease agreement part, which states, no animals or pets of any kind are permitted without a pet amendum. Management may enter the apartment at any time to remove any pet or animal which management believes to be neglected, distressed or endangered. Resident releases management, this is their typo, resident releases management from liability of any kind when management acts to retrieve or protect residents' pets and animals which appear to be neglected, distressed or endangered. Our management staff has received multiple reports with regards to your failure to comply with the above leasing requirements. No resident is permitted to have a pet without having a signed pet addendum. Please be reminded of section three, I'll remove this, um, your unauthorised pet has contributed to your disruption of the quiet enjoyment of the premises <laughs> for other members in the community. Yes. Please be advised that you have 24 hours to remove the pet from the premises huh. or sign the pet addendum and pay fees mentioned above. This shall serve as a formal warning against such behaviour and any further violation of your signed lease. Please be advised that if you do not take this necessary action to remove the pet or to receive written authorization from management to keep the pet on the premises, legal action can be taken to terminate your tendency as a result of this lease violation without further notice. Right. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, and it yeah. goes on. Yeah. Just the, yeah, the typical blah, blah stuff. So the thing that fascinates me about this interaction, firstly, is that we signed the pet addendum. <laughs> we paid the... Uh, ah. Yeah, eleven hundred dollars plus additional. Wow, eleven hundred dollars. Yep. Jesus Christ! That's for a whole year, I hope. No, that's for no. We pay pet rent as well. In addition to that, that's just what we added to the deposit in order to have our cats. Okay. Oh, that's okay. So that's a one-time fee. Yeah, plus the pet rent, which is one additional whatever. So, um, (laughs) I wrote a quite polite letter in response to this, and um. You know, sent an email accordingly as well. And my wife went down to the front office the next day. They stuck this on everyone's door. Not just our door. (laughs) Every single person in this complex got this threatened to act within 24 hours notice. Because... They had, for whatever, they're so completely incompetent. They had lost all the leasing documentation or some information, and they needed people to check in with them just to see, you know, what pets they had on the leases and what have you. Yeah. The woman, according to my wife, was perfectly pleasant and said, "Look, please apologise to your husband associated with the letter. We just needed to get this information." Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah. It is absolutely astonishing, Heron. Just when you think that you've, you've just when you think Heron is totally full of shit with his language monkey stuff, no, 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 no. <laughs> you begin to realize just how true it is. When, just when my <laughs> expectations of the human race have just gone that low, someone just tunnels underneath and burrows it down. Well, just screw those humans. That's why I say we need a new species. It's just yes. the hu- the, it's over for the humans. Yes, you know. I was Jump watching a, ship, abandon. <laughs> I was watching a documentary about a fellow who bought a block of land, I think in Ohio, and he basically turned it into this kind of anarchist skateboarding park where he gets in <laughs> kids and adults that traipse all... I mean, it's basically like a mecca 
for like punk rock anarchist skateboarding folk. <laughs> and the a great category. Wait a minute, <laughs> punk anarchist skateboarders. Okay, yes. all right, that, that makes a lot of sense actually. And so he he has there at any given time about twenty to thirty. I don't know what you'd call them. Um, or like um. What, what, when Muslims go to Hajj, what do you call it? They're pilgrims. They have uh, pilgrims, right, that go to the skateboarding park. And yeah. part of the pilgrimage is that they have to do some body of work while they're there. So they'll typically, like, create a skateboard ramp or break apart a car or do a variety of things yeah. that need to be done. They have parties, um, I think, once a quarter. And what people do as they're leaving is that they have to give them an item from their car as the means of kind of entering the or leaving. They're only interested in getting people to give stuff when they're leaving. But it just struck me that one could create like a technical commune with a similar kind of ethos. Yeah, I like that. And I mean, I think that's basically what Timothy Leary was trying to do at various stages of his life. He was trying to create a space that was out somewhere that he would have intellectuals constantly coming through. And I think there's something there that I have to, like, decompress and aspire to fundamentally. That, you know, you need to have this... Yeah, that would be place. real nice. Well, there there are places like that. I mean, sort of. I mean, you know, Esalon was that for a while. And... For No, Esalon is that for, what, $1,900 for a week? Well, whatever. I mean, Esalon... I mean yeah, yeah, well, yeah. But at least it's there for somebody. That's not that much money uh, for for a lot of people. You yes, know, there are a lot of people who can afford that. You're right. It'd be better if everybody could go, you know, but in this system, that's not easy to do. Yeah, there's um there's a retreat right next to Esalon that is um about a thousand dollars less, but they do <laughs> like hand handcrafts and things like that. My wife yeah. has been invited there, and I actually think I might go up there. Yeah, um, because no, it's a very nice part of the world. I mean, it's very nice to. You know, be be. Well, you know, you can, I think you could sense. do it in a city. Yeah, I think you so know, t- you know, it doesn't really make any difference where you do. You can do it in a shitty area. Yeah. You know, it, it's about the people who hang out there. That's what counts. Yeah. That's the issue. Yeah, it needs to. It needs to have a restaurant and uh, a theater and and a whole bunch, like an atheist church, sort of. <laughs> so, do you know who Alex Gray is, the artist? The uh, kind of vaguely, yeah, yeah, vaguely. I've so seen his stuff, yeah. He's in the process of building uh, the, I don't think it's an atheist church, but he, he created a church as a means to build this structure with tax write-offs and then paint it and construct <laughs> it. And, have it. Um, and yeah, it's in, it's in upstate New York somewhere. Yeah, cool. Um, and they're, they're building it. I've been so. considering that in just the last couple of weeks. I've been thinking, you know, maybe I should start a religion, you know? I mean, yeah. that could be cool. Yeah, I think the, the requirements now for religion are so interesting. I mean, basically, Alex Gray did a series of um, talks, which I have listened to the audio of, actually explaining how hard you need to fight to create a religion these days. Yeah. I mean, it's an uphill battle. The existing religions don't want you there for a start. Oh, of course not. Yeah, so, it's a guild. You know? <laughs> yes. They don't want a circumstance where they have any new religions. Yeah, you've got enough competition. You know? Exactly. Exactly. But, I mean, still, they have rules. You just have to follow their rules. 
Um, it's it's all informal bullshit anyway. You still, it, is, you know. it is codified, but it does actually require human interactions on a number of occasions. Ah. It's not just a matter of getting a series of stamps. Ah, you need... Well, you need accountants and lawyers and things like that as well, but you also need to... Uh, you got to have a good story. you got to have yeah. a story they want to hear. Yeah, you need to appease both bureaucrats, lawyers, and accountants at various yeah. times in order to do it. I've been but always, once you get it, then you yeah. got it, right? They can't, can they take it away from you? I guess they can if, if you piss them off too much. So right? my friend Bruce Damer has a number of non-profits that he set up, and I think realistically... I mean, they have some benefit if you have a structure where, you know, there's a kind of almost toroidal-like flow of, you know, money and interest and information. But, I mean, to maintain all of that, I think, is quite time-consuming and probably oh, yeah. works against it as well. Well, you, you hire people to do that shit. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that would be boring. Yeah. But the idea of, of starting a real religion, serious, I mean, I'm, I'm quite serious about that. I mean, it's, a, it's an anti- butter or an anti-caterpillar move in that sense but i think um i don't know i I think you might be able to actually create a religion that doesn't have dogma but still could qualify as a religion yes you know and with good marketing (laughs) you know who knows yes imagine that yeah belief itself is the great sin Yes. Now, can you get away with that as a religion, though? No, I think it actually requires. I mean, it, well, but I got my Bob story. Yeah, I think the pro- I think you need to work. So there I needs throw to be, that in. There needs to be a little bit more than just Bob. I think, Karen, because oh, okay. there's no there's no Bob reflexive guilt. I mean, there's no no. That's yeah, that, of course, yeah. But that's you what, know, but you, do, do they really need that? I mean, is have, that necessary? Have you spent any length of time talking with Hindus? Uh, no. It always interests me that I think of reincarnation in really very simple terms. And if you talk to a Hindu about actual, like, their description of reincarnation, it is very, very complicated. Amazingly so, actually. It's something that struck me that a phenomena just that, you know, my cats were previously people and maybe I'll in future be Uh a cat or something. I mean, this kind of phenomena is not the way reincarnation works in a kind of Hindu sense. The Buddhists have a lot more kind of, you know, fundamental kind of reincarnation um, descriptions, but I've always found it very interesting talking to uh, to folks where you think you understand the phenomena associated with their various religious persuasion, but you, you miss a lot of the eccentricities. Hmm. I've always found it really easy to pass gas around fundamentalists. It's a really very strange phenomena. When I used to DJ for Pentecostals, I would end up in these circumstances where we'd be performing and then we'd go out for a meal and then, you know, you'd always be in these tight social circumstances. I guess I was 17 at the time. The first time I passed gas in this experience, I thought, I have sinned fundamentally in front of these people. And, you know, the honey bait were just like, no, it's okay. Let it happen, you know. And I never would have known that. I would have thought... That, you know, flatulence and Jesus were like two things that were just in complete, you know, opposite ends of the ring. But apparently, <laughs> well, it depends on what ring you're in. Too, it, well, you know? it, yeah, yeah. Even, I, I think it really is a case by case basis. I think mm. in some other situation, uh, you, would, you might cause a, an outrage. 
Potentially so. You know? Yeah, potentially and, and so. And then if it gets, and it's really just if it happens, it might teeter and it might go one way or the other, but if it goes the other way, you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah, it, it certainly, I mean, my experiences, particularly also, I, so I watched, I watched a documentary through the week, which I actually want to really talk about because I found it really fascinating, but I don't want to ruin the plot for people. I think it would annoy you to watch it, Heron, which makes me feel a little bit better to talk about oh, the good. Plot. Okay? So yeah. I'm going to tell you about this film to the point where probably everyone who's listening to this, now I'm going to spoil this film for you folks. So brace yourselves. Yeah, come back in five minutes. If you want to do that, yes. So I watched this. That's right. They don't. They can just turn it off for, yeah, easy. How yeah. long is this going to take? I don't know, five, three to five minutes. Three it's an interesting minutes. story. Okay. All right, yeah. Okay. So the documentary is called The Flat, and it's about a Jewish family in, uh, in Tel Aviv where the grandmother dies, the 98-year-old grandmother dies, and the grandson, who's a filmmaker in, I guess, his 40s, helps his mother go through the grandparents' flat. And they've got a whole lot of stuff associated with how much books, they, how many books they have, and all this stuff because they came from Germany. They were actually early settlers in um, nineteen thirty-seven. They came over from Germany to Israel, well, Palestine as it was then, and they brought all their German books with them. And oh, wasn't it all very eccentric? They find the son finds the grandson finds a newspaper article which is a story of his grandparents coming over with a Nazi family, like literally people in the SS in 1940, in 1937. And this Nazi family were basically high in the Nazi hierarchy and they were trying to get the Jews to re to move to Palestine. And this was the first family that came over with these Nazis and the Nazis went back and the Jewish family stayed in, in Israel. And then it turns out that the after the war, this Jewish couple got back in contact with this German couple, the Nazi couple, and they continued. They used to go to Germany on a regular basis and they'd have, you know, they'd eat with them and they'd have, like, long-term, like, you know, they, yeah. they liked hanging out with each other. Yeah. And... The grandmother on the Jewish side had been gassed and the the family now had a daughter. So this grandson went over and met the daughter and the daughter's husband. And they were, you know, chipper German folk and it was all very nice. The really interesting part of this is that the, the, the two couples like to talk. They enjoyed each other's company and irrespective of what went on during the war... You know, with the grandmother yeah. getting gassed and all yeah. this other yeah, stuff. Yeah, well, that's yeah, that's that. That's they a continued story. to talk. Right? Yeah, this is fun, and they got on with each other. And this, this, I guess, is just such a complete <laughs> reframing. And the terrible thing is that the the Nazi couple's daughter didn't really know what the father did during the war, and the Jewish grandson basically says, "No, I've got the documents here, SS." Uh, you know, gassing people. Here's the documentation. Your father did this. 
make sure you read this document. This is in his own handwriting. This is his resume. He wrote himself, admitting to all of this. No, he just wasn't some executive in Coca-Cola that travelled the world. He was killing people right here. So it is an interesting kind of... It is really quite a strange film, the way it kind of captured you in some strange direction. But the conversation, the strength of the conversation, having an ability to have a good conversation with someone and the fact that you will forgive almost any other aspect just to have a good conversation, that this Mm. is a valuable and intrinsically valuable thing that you will seek out and find. You know, and and also the idea that people do change. You know, that's... That's fundamental. I think the interesting part is not that people do change because they liked their company when they knew them initially. Well, no, but I'm I'm speaking just to a different issue of the past, holding yes. on to the past. People, you know, it is possible for people who have done really terrible things to like really be different people now. You know, to to have come to terms with what they did and understanding, you know, that kind of stuff. Yes, that's rare. But it is possible, and hopefully we we get even better at that. <laughs> yes, yes. But no, I found it quite an interesting because the yeah the why do you think I'd hate that? Um, I think it was a little bit too like neurotic Jewish for you potentially. Harry. No, it's a little bit too much language monkey. It's not New York. It has nothing to do with Jewish. It's just those fucking language monkeys. No, they, they, no, they've got their stories. Well, you know, they have to. There's something just about it where I could see that it would. Yes, the language. Well, it might be interesting. Kind of language monkey. Yeah, yeah. The Jewish language monkey is a unique brand of of language monkey. You know, like black or white or Indian or any other you know language monkeys. They're all they all have their own little stories. Yeah. Yeah. These specifically were my Ashkenazi brethren. I mean, let's call them what they are. They were Ashkenazi. Not just any kind of Jew, but Ashkenazi. Ashkenazi so, language monkeys. Yes, okay. exactly. Right. Exactly. It's funny, actually, now, because <laughs> when when my wife and I started dating, I realized that she had various anti-Semitic terms that she would use. <laughs> like and what? It was, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, what would be an anti-Semitic term that, that wouldn't be obviously well, anti-Semitic? Well, <laughs> they're all pretty explicitly anti-Semitic. Okay, so I mean, so you're saying she she is or was anyway anti-Semitic. Well, I think she uses anti-Semitic terms that would strike me as saying, "Well, that's a, a, an anti-Semite." Yes, the interesting <laughs> thing is, I think on some level she didn't real. I mean, you know, versus versus African American, you know, anti-African American sentiment, for example, or anti, you know, anti-Chinese sentiment, yeah. or any of these kind of. The subtleties associated with anti-Semitism need to sometimes be explained, but a lot of the stuff that she said was just pretty. Yeah. So I, w- I would always <laughs> use the, I would change the terms that were anti-Semitic and use the term America instead <laughs> to just make the point even more extreme. Yeah. But now, now I have this this term Ashkenazi thanks to Twenty Three and Me. <laughs> she now uses the term Ashkenazi in a similar light, but uh-huh. I, you know, for, for me, I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's a it's a term of endearment when it's used in a negative light. When you say Ashkenazi versus when you say Jew, perhaps I don't know. It's a curious thing. Well, it's your issue, not mine. <laughs> You'll figure it out. I I have faith in you. <laughs> so tomorrow. I have a very interesting experience. 
I am going to appear for an hour exactly on Pacifica Radio. And I'm calling in just before one on a telephone line. And (laughs) then they're going to record for an hour and then they're going to stop all on a telephone line. I did this maybe four years ago for that, maybe three years ago. You just forget how completely antiquated the radio is. (laughs) But I mean, that's, yeah, that's absurd. I mean, this isn't, is this going, is this live or are they just recording it? I think they recorded. I think it's going to be aired on Thursday. Okay, yeah, that, that's so absurd. They 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 haven't heard of Skype. I guess I just it, my mind. Have you, have, is you, like have, you have you been in contact with them? Have you suggested, hey guys, have, have you ever tried Skype? I think basically, <laughs> my view is that if you offer a telephone number and you have this process and all these kind of things, you just don't. I mean, the the thing is actually really going to be very. Strange. I've been asked to give like proof information and things like that, and I've I've pointed them basically. It's it's for publicity. Well, it's being organised by um, a fellow called Eric Davis, who has a weekly radio show on Pacifica. I've never really heard of Eric Davis before, and um, you know when I mention this, it's a friend of um, our friend KMO's, uh, and basically KMO and Eric Davis. Um, did some talks a couple of years ago and KMO's like, oh yeah, we've got to do this publicity with Eric Davis. I'm like, well, who's Eric Davis? And KMO said, well, he's got a Wikipedia page, you know, and showed me the Wikipedia entry and I just thought, okay. Um, he's, he's written for Rolling Stone and various other things. I mean, I think he's just a kind of, you know, a journalist guy who writes kind of guy, stuff. you know. Um, anyway, so he's doing a, he's doing a chat with KMO and, and I, um, tomorrow from 1 p.m. recorded. And then, you know, that will go out Thursday, and that's promotion for the talk that will be going on. can't be next week. It must be the week after the Conscious in the Cloud talk. Yeah. Um, And I think I might actually still have a job at Netflix then, so it might actually all come together. (laughs) Very curious, that whole thing. So my, my friend at Apple, who I mentioned last week, who used to work on Noble Ape, Somehow, oh, he was asking about the origin of my name, and I showed him the grave with my great uncle with the spelling of the name on it. And he said, oh, yes, my father was born in 1946 as well. And I said, oh, yes. And he said, when the Vietnam War came around, he saw um, people being lined up in front of the post office and saying, you're in the Army, you're in the Marines, you're in the Navy. And he realized that the safest place for him to be was the Air Force. And I thought... That story sounds really familiar. <laughs> Where have I heard that story before? Yes. <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah, I, I talked to a, talk to this guy in L.A., this linguist guy, every Friday night, and, yeah, that was his story as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was either that or leave the country, and I was too chicken shit to do that. So, yeah. You know, so I took the easy way out, man. Yeah. I mean, was the Air Force just seen in that light when you went into it? Well, you're not going to be out in the bushes with a fucking rifle in your hand. Yeah. You know, you may be on the perimeter of the base with a rifle in your hand. And I found myself there a couple of times, and that was no fun. But, you know, you're not out in the bushes. Yeah. I didn't want to be out in the bushes. And and being in the Navy, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. No, they had those Navy SEAL. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. Great. Still too military. The, the Air Force seemed like the least military to me. 
Yes. Yes. <laughs> and it what turned out the... to be an okay choice. I mean, I survived. You know, who knows what would have happened? Uh, you know? God, that, what, my whole life would have been different if I'd gone and maybe in, ended up, you know, in the Marines or the Army out in the bushes with a fucking M16, man. That would have been an interesting experience. Or flying them in in a helicopter so everyone in the vicinity knew you knew exactly where they were. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, see, God, all that language monkey shit. You know, why the fuck would people do stuff like that? They're all crazy. Well, they've got to keep the young people down because basically the young people unrestrained. Yeah. Well, you know what happened when no, the young people yeah, were unrestrained. Yeah, yeah so, they have rock yeah. and roll shit, you yeah. know, and you get Elvis Presley and it's been downhill since then. Yeah, damn skipping. <laughs> damn skipping. It is a phenomenon, actually. I've been thinking quite critically associated with music. I spend quite a bit of time on YouTube when I have free time. Not that I've had it recently, but when I had free time, I spent quite a bit of time on YouTube listening to, like, independent new music. Yeah. You know who the Hives are? Yes. <laughs> I love them. I love theirs. I mean, that's old stuff now, I guess. I mean, they're, are they even still alive? They must have died of old age by now. Well, I think they're still... <laughs> I'm not sure if they're content. They're a bit older than I am. But, yeah. Yeah. Now, the, the new one that I found for a period of time was called... I think it's called Kids and Explosions, which is actually... The interesting thing about that fellow, it's a single fellow. He basically... Yeah. He has a song called Swear Words, which is just a series of expletives with Cindy Lauper's Girls Just Want to Have Fun sampled underneath in a very kind of tuneful way. And it really is absolutely brilliant. I mean, it's about yeah. two and a half minutes, yeah. but it's just completely... Anyway, so I was looking at this fellow, and he's he's he was nominated for an Academy Award for... <laughs> he worked with a lawyer in Canada who, at age 14, recorded an interview with John Lennon. And the, the, the thing that he got nominated for the Academy Award was, I talked... I think it's called I Talk to the Walrus which is a short, maybe four-and-a-half, five-minute clip of animations with this kid interviewing John Lennon. And John Lennon's just talking about how all these, you know, squares and the revolution and all this other kind of John Lennon-esque stuff. And it's animated with this beautiful kind of Monty Python-esque, you know, that kind of flowing stuff where the animation's kind of, you know, very kind of from, you know, Yellow Submarine up to Monty Python. But beautifully done. Anyway, this kid... Um, produced this work with an artist maybe five, six years ago um, and got nominated for an Academy Award, much to his own chagrin. And the work that he's done since is this, I don't know, it's like hyper kind of sampling mashup stuff, which actually can be quite quite acoustically beautiful in its kind of surreal jarringness. Yeah, um, yeah. But, yeah, that's one of my recent discoveries. Yeah, it's the first new, th- you know, actually hasn't been much new in music until well it's been a few years now but technology has really opened up yeah. the possibilities for making patterns with sound the interesting thing is is what has happened in parallel to you know the i i, I was reading about um the bezos acquisition of place at the wall it's the washington Whatever, whatever magazine, whatever newspaper he purchased. The Post. The I mean, Post, the yeah. Post. And the thing that strikes me about all these kind of old media things is that they are... 
there was some discussion associated with what Amazon has done to publishing, that basically Amazon has put the, you know, the wooden spike in the back of publishing and that, you know, people who used to make a living out of publishing books now can't because Amazon basically, you know, nickel and dimed the price of a book down to next to nothing. So apparently, where the hell are books next to a nothing on Amazon? <laughs> well, books used to. I mean, I guess people. I remember actually paying forty or fifty dollars. Oh, for, for text, yeah, some textbooks and stuff. But I mean, still, any first run, any book I'm interested in, new from Amazon, is somewhere between fifteen and twenty bucks. Yeah, I guess that's still for these publishers. I mean, when I look at academic publishing, particularly the books that are intended for students, they have absolutely gone through the roof. Yeah. I mean, it's really has gone in a really very, very strange yeah, direction. That'll be over soon. Yes. <laughs> that won't last. You know, everything is going to tablets, man. That, that yeah. just, that's just makes so much sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, education hasn't even begun to see what's going to happen to it. I think uh, most of the schools will become unnecessary in just a few years. You'd hope that would be the case. I think yeah. the, the Well, I think people who can the... afford, people who are tuned in will understand that. You know, a lot of people may may not be able to take advantage of it, but uh a lot of people will. So, Joe the drummer has posted a series of articles associated with a variety of topics and one of them flowed down this notion of education. We briefly touched mutually on our own school experiences. But I think the phenomena associated... I mean, my sense of education, formal education, as done by the state and various private enterprises, but mainly as done by the state, is its primary purpose is to educate children about the prison system. <laughs> I mean, well, I, think I wouldn't have put it quite that harshly. No, I mean but, seriously. I know. I look. I'm not joking. No, I here. know you're not. I know you're not. Listen, I, that, yeah. <laughs> well, listen. We we both agree. Uh, we could probably do better. <laughs> well, this is interesting, actually, because I've thought about my own experiences in school and how it it cemented in my mind that I wanted to be as rid as possible of this environment. Yeah. I went to an all-boys Catholic high school, remember? Yes. <laughs> I th and I'm thankful for it, because if it wasn't for that, I'd probably still be a Catholic. <laughs> yes. It was a reform school, quite fundamentally. Well, yeah. it was, a, It was. I mean, when I got out of there, I knew that was, I've had enough of that, thank you. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, yet you still harbor a small amount of Catholic guilt somewhere in oh, there. Oh, there's still some bad... Yeah, I, listen, I have not completely finished my rehab yet. Uh, it was interesting, actually, because we were talking a few shows ago associated with my early beer-drinking experiences, and I think perhaps the element that I missed is the legal age for drinking is considerably lower in Australia than it is here. Mm -hmm. Because I was describing my experiences mowing lawns in the heat and then drinking a cold beer following that. Yeah, that's And I right. was thinking, that is, I was, I was probably two and a half, maybe even two years away from legal drinking age in that circumstance. Well, what, what is the legal drinking age in Australia? I think it, it's 18. 18, okay. Yeah. Well, that's what it is here, isn't it? No, it's 21. Really? You can it's vote at 18, 21. but you can't exactly. drink. No, that's in the Constitution. <laughs> it's quite ironic. <laughs> okay. 
Yeah. What? It's in the Constitution that you can't drink till you're 21? No, it's in the Constitution that you vote at 18. Well, why did they have to go through? Oh, did because they, they had to amend the. Yes. They have to write an amendment to change yes. that. Oh, okay. Because I know it was twenty-one before. It's the final amendment. I think, oh, okay. All right. In at least the published constitution. That was a bad though. move. I would have thought they would have moved it up to like forty-five or something. No, that's just the senatorial age. Actually, it's an interesting <laughs> phenomenon. I was reading. Um, I was reading somewhere about the youngest and the second youngest. Like, there's a thirty-year-old guy. Who is uh, he's actually he's from Grand Rapids where I was in Michigan. Yeah. He's a Republican, but he's part of like this new Republican libertarian anti neocon movement, <laughs> which actually crosses the yeah, aisle yeah, on a number yeah, of issues. Sure, yeah, anyone who's sensible would. Yeah, so <laughs> it is really strange that there are these young Republicans that regularly get together with older Democrats. Yeah. On a series of issues, yeah. like the NSA, for example. Sure. There's a lot of, um, yeah. Well, that old issue of right and left is just, uh, that's part of the old way of looking at it. Uh, there, yeah. there are other ways that cut through all that bullshit that we can yeah. get together on. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting, actually. I mean, I think I, I knew uh, at least one strongly kind of, uh, what was the fellow's name, Ron Paul? Yeah. You know, and I always felt Ron Paul was just a Republican. I mean, his libertarian credentials I didn't think were particularly good. But it comes, he was actually, funnily enough, he was also the zeitgeist guy and the truther guy in the uh, office. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, go figure. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, he, he had a number of boxes ticked associated with... Well, um, see, again, uh, Language people. Monkey sort of handles most of this stuff. <laughs> so this fellow basically had a substantial office, and he was a hoarder. And in order to work with him, I wasn't... In order to work with him, I had to agree to clear out his office as a sideline thing. So I <laughs> well, that could be easy. The only problem was <laughs> just the throw first it time, all away. Well, the first time I did that, he had all these board, circuit boards with like these pins sticking up, and I basically cut up my hands. So I then took in gardening gloves, which everyone thought was highly amusing, and I cleaned out his office with gardening gloves. Yeah. Just to make a statement that I didn't want to cut up my hands anymore. Well, that makes sense. That's I, not unreasonable. This, this guy had an office which I guess was probably maybe 25 feet long and about 10 feet wide. It was a substantial office. Yeah. And it was literally, you had to turn to the side to get into various sections previously. I took out at least two dumpsters. And these were smaller <laughs> size dumpsters, but dumpsters full of stuff. I did it over a two-week oh, period. Man. yeah. People can believe it because yeah. I was just literally hauling stuff out of this guy's place. And yeah, when, when it was finished, it was all spotless, and he had like these machines on either side, and I'd like organize the whole thing. And that was basically the last thing I did before I left. <laughs> I wonder how long it took him to clutter it up again. I've seen photographs since they actually had a party. <laughs> they had a, like a frozen banana party or something, and uh, it's actually you can you, two people can stand next to each other still. <laughs> anyway, he was he was the he was the office Ron Paul libertarian zeitgeist. Well, that tells you a lot. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. He used to chew tobacco, which was another phenomenon. Or they don't. It's not chewing tobacco. They just put it in their mouths and spit into things. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think they chew on it when they first put it in there to sort of get it started. 
I think this was the stuff that they just put under their gums. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. God, that's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> and I used to smoke, and yeah. I, but smoking isn't disgusting. You know, I mean, it's murderous, but it's not disgusting. I don't know. I, my, I always attributed it to the South. You know, it's like a southern and, and baseball pitchers. <laughs> well, except the chewing tobacco, where they actually get it in their gums and they chew it, is very different to the yeah. kind of packing under the lips kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But it is all very, very. I mean, strange. I wonder if there's any. I mean, if the, what what's the drug connection in that kind of practice? It's How nicotine. far back is it? Just nicotine? Yeah. Oh, I mean, you've got those. You've got those bean things that uh, they yeah, there are other co- in yeah. Samoa yeah. that they put under. But I mean, yeah, my view is that it's just nicotine in the, you know. But nicotine, you know, I'm trying to think what is the what is the hot, what is the good part of it? Yes, it's addictive. Keeps but, you awake and energetic. Okay, and, so and it's the, like caffeine. It's like okay. caffeine. Okay, basically. okay. all right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting means of. Uh, of doing all these things, Some, I I may have told you this. One of uh, one of Rushkoff's friends in New York. I came to Netflix maybe a year ago now, uh, and he was a he was like a social smoker, and he posted on his Facebook page recently that uh, he was. What does that mean? A social smoker? I don't it means I think they. Means. I mean, it's, I think that they smoke maybe two or three cigarettes. Okay, a day. Just when they're with other people, and yes. they don't smoke at home or something. Exactly. Oh, I never actually thought considered that as an even possible as a social thing to do. Yeah, well, I just yeah, okay. I this got was it. a New Yorker thing. Yeah, okay. Yeah, sometimes you go to a place where everybody smokes. You yeah. know, so you smoke. Yeah, <laughs> but that's the only time you smoke. Yeah, it struck me as I I have friends actually that I went to school with that moved to the East Coast that are like that too. It really is very strange. I I guess I must associate it with the East Coast, where they're not they're not in environments where they can smoke normally. They're only in environments around other people where they can smoke, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It never really made well, any sense. Well, it's got a whole, new, uh, yeah, a whole new ethic around smoking now. You know, mm. uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I found that with San Francisco, actually, that basically it just meant that everyone outside was passively smoking because it had tall buildings, it had bunches of smokers, and basically the smoke was just everywhere when <laughs> yeah. you went outside. Yeah, I know. I, I go outside. You know, they're sitting in an outside restaurant or something, you know, and you can smell the smoke. <laughs> yeah. It's like better to go inside, you know. <laughs> yeah. It is. A, I mean, you are very anti-smoking, aren't you? No. I mean, you I voted anti-smoking. Oh, right? hell yeah. Well, if that, yeah, I don't want to breathe it. I don't give a shit whether yeah. other people smoke. Just don't, I don't want to breathe it. That's all. You yeah. do what the fuck, you know, I don't care. Yes. Yeah, I think. I just don't want to breathe it. That's all. Yes. It is an interesting phenomenon because I, I notice it when it's around and then when it's not around, I don't notice it at all. Well, of course. How would you yeah. expect it to be any other way? <laughs> It was funny, actually, because in Australia, I noticed it more than I notice it here. I think people smoke less here than they do in Australia. I think it's, uh, I don't know what the stats are, but it seems to mm. me I've heard stats that it really has ch- changed in the last decade. Yeah. Yeah. 
Interesting. Yeah. Now, when I actually, I don't, when I don't go out that much. There's only one guy in our office who goes out and smokes, and he's smoking one of those electronic things now. Yeah. No. This is what this fellow posted on his Facebook page that this was an amazing breakthrough. It was the, a nicotine the, delivery system. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what they ought to do is make it look like a Sherlock Holmes pipe instead of a medical device. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's interesting, actually. What's the, what's the term? A two-pipe or a three-pipe problem? And I still hear people use that term occasionally, but that's the Sherlock Holmes reference. You know, <laughs> this, is, this is going to be a three-pipe problem, Watson. You know. Three-pipe problem. Yeah, if you can say that, he needs another pipe full. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, a three-pipe. That's not easy to say. Three-pipe full no, pipeful. No, it's a three-pipe problem. That's what they Three-pipe problem, okay. Yeah. <laughs> three-pipe problem. It's still not easy to say, but I've had, what, three glasses of wine? Two. How's your wine glass currently? Well, it's empty. That's why okay. I was... Okay, I, I need to actually fill my water glass, which takes me to move the table and do various other things. So let me stop the recorder and get... Okay. In. I'm here. I'm here as well. <laughs> so, I have a few more topics here. Uh, Nothing more from Joe the Drummer this week? So, Joe the Drummer threw up a few topics, and I was kind of thinking about how I could even really address them. I think Joe was a little bit miffed. In fact, it's interesting, actually, because Marie Camacho and Joe the Drummer, two folks who are frequent participants in the show. Joe didn't necessarily have a flat week. I think he was just a bit concerned that um, he didn't really understand where his topic last week went wrong. So what he did was to put together a series of possible links, a lot of which is just references back to our work, Heron, which is always going to be problematic to discuss anyway. Yeah, no, he needs to put it in text. Yeah. Either that so, or, or get your ass in here and uh, explain if, if we misinterpreted it or fucked it up somehow. Or, or tell us how we fucked it up, in your opinion, and let's talk about it. That sounds interesting. Well, I think he wanted more information from me associated with the, the whole kind of perturbation as it, as it ended up last week. And my only feedback to him was that he should consider perhaps putting... I mean, he is very interested about certain phenomena in Noble Ape. And I don't necessarily feel that this is the right forum for me to talk excessively about Noble Ape. Right, it's not. No, You guys should be talking about that. On one of the Noble Ape-related podcasts. Right, yes. Exactly, exactly. But a phenomena that has come up through discussion recently is associated with the distinction between the archetype and the stereotype. The archetype and the stereotype. Ooh, that's a, so that's I a use, dangerous area to be getting into I without use, some very clever linguistics. <laughs> well, this is interesting, actually, and I found this recently because I, I use the term, I use the notion of the archetype 
frequently. I use it as a means to, you know, get a greater degree of understanding from the interactions that I have with people. It is a very interesting tool because it enables you. You actually use the term archetype in oh, yes. in your conversation? Okay. No, 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 no. I use or, it internally. Okay. So when all I right, meet right. people, yeah. when I meet people, I naturally categorize them with experiences that I've had with other people previously. Well, yeah, how can you not do that? We all do that. That's you what our brains it. do. That's what it's, that's what we have it for. But the ability to acknowledge it and to create defined types is, I think, an important yeah. process and something that I find very useful. Oh, yeah. It's interesting, actually, because... It's just important to remember that it's a fiction. That's the, as long as you remember that, then you're you're safe to go ahead and, and create any categories you want, and they can be very helpful. So, for example, and I don't necessarily use this practice with model rail radio, but it's a good way of doing things. I frequently have callers that are first-time callers, and my ability not only to bond with them, joke with them, but also to get information from them and to fundamentally interview them on some kind of pragmatic level is a skill that people seem to be relatively receptive to. In fact, it works very well in the format of the show. I also find through my professional work that I have to do this in one form or another. Um, and ultimately, you know, it's, it's one of the things that I use quite frequently as a means of firstly understanding what is going on, but also working towards conclusions with people who have a wide variety of... Um, you know, diverse experiences and language social. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so yes. moving through these kind of processes, anything that gets me to a conclusion faster, I think is actually a positive thing. And I actually find it really interesting how many strange similarities exist between people from a variety of different locations in the world. It is actually very striking to me. Well, amongst your, you're talking about model rail. No, I'm actually talking here about my professional work as well. Oh, okay. But, no, so the phenomena... Well, even there, I mean, again, you're dealing with a highly select group of people in both those cases. Let me tell an interesting <laughs> story associated with this. I did a lot of traveling in 1999, I met roughly 10,000 people through that experience. And the phenomena there was just that I would meet people and within a short period of time would have to work out things with them and then potentially, you know, move them into people I'd be working with for a short term, medium term, long term, and kind of gauge this continuously. But it was a very interesting process because I had to remember names and faces and locations and also, obviously, this business card phenomena. When I was uh, in university for the first two years, I lived on campus, as they say, but it was in a conservative Catholic college that was run by nuns, which was an interesting experience in and of itself. There I met a woman who would have been a baby a year or two older than me who befriended me and we, you know, remained friends for at least the first year that I was there. Uh, and she had a very serious, she had a series of kind of strange idiosyncrasies associated with the way that she interacted with men, associated with the major that she was doing. She was a, a pianist 
Um, but, but basically, she'd gotten sufficiently high results that she could have gone into law, but she opted to be a pianist instead. And she was a very curious character. I still, I'm still friends with her on Facebook. I've kept in contact with her. When I was in is New York, is she a pianist now? I mean, is she uh, no. living as a pianist? No, I think it's actually really, really, really difficult to do that. Well, of course it is. And yes. I went to a number of her recitals, and she was pretty good, but she wasn't, wasn't absolutely mind blowing. Yeah, yeah, and right. yeah. you have to be mind blowing. Yeah. So she then went on to teach children music. She then went on to be involved with a variety of education programs. She spent a period of time in Indonesia. I mean, she did a variety of things with her life. Have you ever, you obviously know David Helfcott, right? Of course. Have you ever heard him play or heard his recordings? A hero. <laughs> you know how many conversations we've had? We've had this conversation oh, okay. before. All Let right, me sorry. tell you, you're, you're moving me off my original story, but I will talk on this a little bit. You may have forgotten this, but it's a great I story. I probably have. My... My best friend growing up, really my only long-term friend through my childhood, was a fellow who basically, by the time he was in his mid-teens, was just a complete dropout. But I'd known him through up until that point. But then we continued to be friends. Uh, and he was just... I, I don't know what a complete dropout means. I mean, He, really. basically, he didn't attend school. He, okay, he disappeared he for a okay. period of six months. He was months doing something else. Yeah, okay. right. he, he was normally involved with you know, youth theatre and politics okay. and things like that, right. but he just liked to get stoned a lot. You know? oh, okay. so, oh, well, that's a whole different thing. Exactly. <laughs> that's not so dropping out. That's being stoned in. a lot. Yeah. So he, <laughs> he right, basically, in. In, when he was... No, that's know. turning on. Turning on, yes. When he was when he was when he was nineteen, he still played bridge competitively. I mean he had all these oh. eccentricities. Yeah. And he played bridge competitively. And somehow he found himself in Ronan films uh, when he was nineteen. And he was off his you know, he'd obviously been smoking a lot of weed that day, because that's basically what he did. He turned up there and somehow they gave him the job publicizing Shine. <laughs> and he publicized Shine for like a year. I mean, this was my, he's never, he, he's never going to even complete high school. He can't even be bothered. <laughs> he turns up for two classes and, you know, yeah. it's not his Some seat. people just are lucky. <laughs> anyway, so he publicized Shine. And the thing is that Did he was do telling a good me job? about this, it won on a few Academy Awards, didn't it? <laughs> well, okay. I mean, uh, no, this this whole thing was just like a surreal island in his life. Yeah. And the thing that struck me about it the most was that he knew everyone from Hellscott all the way through, all the people who were involved with this film. He, was, he had them yeah. on speed dial, you yeah. know? Yeah. So, yeah, that's my connection with Hellscott. And having seen, having seen, because knowing my friend, he said, oh, yeah, there's this movie, Shire, that's about a pianist, you might like it, do you want to come see it? And I thought, okay. I saw it, like, three months before it hit the theatres. I got an early screening to it. And it just completely blew me away. It captured elements, again, Ashkenazi elements, associated with, like, neurotic fathers and the whole, <laughs> the whole kind of craziness associated with childhood. But also... I mean, you've got to appreciate, by the time I was 19, I was going into Apple as well, you know. So I appreciated the whole notion that you wanted to escape from something and you had yeah. to work really hard well, to get I, out. Well, I was just moment. more, you know, for me, it was just what an awful pianist he is. 
you know <laughs> that that's the part that yeah, just astounds me you, you know the, the mean, guy is just fucks you up well it, it, well like i say it doesn't make any uh, that's all part of the story it's just as a when you listen to the music it's but just look, it's just you so terrible early recordings I've you heard to, I've heard you, a bunch of his stuff. You know, I, his I, stuff after he's after he's had shock therapy and been. Oh, okay, no, I haven't. Oh, wait, he years. may. Ah, okay, well, maybe he may have been good at one time. I, apparently, I haven't heard. To, it. You know, some London conservatory. I mean, he's got to have at least some. Oh, chops that, well, early oh, on. yeah, yeah, but some chops early on and being a concert pianist or two, as you just said, exactly. are two and different, very different things. <laughs> you know. So, returning to my original story, <laughs> I knew this girl. When I was in early university, when I went to New York, I met her doppelganger. Spitting image, exactly the same neuroses, except she had an American accent. This, you literally took the two of them together and they were like identical twins. Wow. And from that. Psychologically, also, you're saying. Yes. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Very, very, very surreal. And I met this woman, she was a friend of Rushkov's at a party somewhere. And I was just dumbfounded. And, you know, I talk. It's something I do. <laughs> and Rushkov was just like, afterwards, you know, what was the deal there? I was just like, this person is the exact person I knew in Australia. Yeah. Unbelievable. It's the Twilight Zone, man. Maybe What I've started <laughs> to realize, actually, particularly as I've gotten older, is that I'm just useless at recognizing people. I think there's actually probably more to do with my own psychology and I think it might be associated with the fact that because my vision perhaps isn't particularly, you know, coherent in terms of my memories and what have you, I'm actually reanalyzing that story yeah. now with a slightly more critical well, You know, they view. say there's a part of the brain that is specifically responsible for, you know, recognizing faces. Mm. And uh, I'm, I've noticed in the last five years or so, that when I'm watching a movie on my, you know, I've got a large screen and I sit close to it so it looks good, mm-hmm. uh, I sometimes look at the face of the star, who I know well, but if it's up close from a, a certain angle or something, it's like I cannot put that together, who that is. Mm-hmm. You know, and then and then I go, oh, okay, yeah, I see it. Yeah, that's who that is. But I don't recall ever doing that before, and I'm wondering if my face recognizer isn't being disrupted some way or other. Yeah. Or, or, or what? I, maybe I just never noticed before. Maybe it's just I'm paying more attention now, and I never looked at it that way. So I, I don't know. It is a very, very strange phenomenon. But returning to archetype and stereotype. Ah, that, that, that. Yes. That's right. okay. we've, we've gone full onion. Back center, back out, center, yeah. back out. The thing that strikes me about the way that I use archetypes is that it's stereotypes, from my view, are associated with grouping simple likenesses. So, you know, Chinese people, Republicans. Yeah, right, yeah. You know, these. So, the, what is the, an archetype, though? See, I, an archetype is, is far deeper. So, for example, it is the uh, overly concerned, overachieving son the younger son. It is the um, slightly disconnected manager who will lie in certain circumstances. It is the 
a girl who has had a bad relationship with her father and has a certain distrust of men. It's all these kind of categorizations which can be described, and then you kind of piece them together. It's the it's the um, highly intelligent and slightly aloof man. You know, it's these elements where, but they have deeper meanings than just that description. Why? There's a kind of because when you put it together, so for example, the the, the there's a there's kind of alpha male which is represented in the younger son <laughs> that is overachieved. This is an archetype that I find frequently, where they will overcompensate and they have a strange relationship with their parents, see, but also people it, that take parental yeah, I, roles. I don't get what the word archetype is adding to this. It's it describes it's just, a it's just acknowledging a certain behavior pattern. Yes. Okay. So I mean, the name isn't particularly no. important here i mean no okay all right so the interesting thing is that bob mottram is looking to do this after much prompting with no blade currently and i actually think it's a very easy doing in what? he wants to do what he wants so no currently has a social graph which is relates to individuals and very well-defined individuals and it's far more interesting if you actually have a social graph which is, describes the people that you know associated with archetypes as well. Really? Because then you can have, or even stereotypes, even more explicitly. Well, you can't avoid stereotypes. I mean, any kind of intelligent system has to make stereotypes. Yes. I mean, that's part of cognition. That's, you know, like I say, the important thing is to realize that it's part of cognition, not part of the world. (laughs) You know, that's the, where we've fucked up before, is we think our stereotypes are the way it is instead of just a way of analyzing data. So Bob has found a phenomenon, which I'm not sure is completely true, that when people identify stereotypes, they will... Well, it, Bob says that they will always react against it, but I think our mutual friend Tracy Portillo indicates that sometimes people actually move towards stereotypes Sure, that seems well. perfectly reasonable to me. Yeah. Maybe well, again, a stereotype, what? I mean, again, there isn't any stereotype except in the mind of the stereotyper. That's exactly the point. And, and those are, you know, yeah. How, how can you even come to any generalizations about that without talking to a particular individual? Because everyone's going to have a unique set of stereotypes. Hmm. Now, that is very interesting. Do you think that's always historically well, been we sh- No, I think we share a bunch, too, just by virtue of the fact that we speak English. We have been sucked into a whole bunch of stereotypes. But then we have each have our own subset, given our own experience and the people in our lives. Hmm. But, yeah, that's the, really the basis of my whole work, is that we, what we have in common is English. <laughs> And that creates its own problems. So at least we can deal with that, and we don't have to talk about your particular peculiarities or mine. We can just deal with the language uh, pathology, and that helps a lot. Yes. And I guess the way Bob is using Nobelite currently is the language pathology embodies itself in code. Uh, the language pathology, well, the language itself embodies itself in code. Right? Yes. Well, everything you... in Noble Ape embodies itself in code. Well, so some things exist independent of code. This is the whole notion of emergence, 
which I think is really quite important. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There has to be uh, yeah stuff that it, you can't predict. Exactly, which which can't embo- which can't on some level embody itself in code. Well, it it allows the code the ability to create other code, and and that gets yeah that's that recursive aspect, and of course that's you know <laughs> the most powerful thing, and also dangerous if you don't keep it under control. So there has been another interesting phenomena in the past week, which has fitted in very well with me not having a lot of time recently, and that is that Bob Bottram is creating his own copyrighted elements in Noble Ape and putting them in. Oh, cool. Which I actually think is a really interesting phenomenon and something that I've been mindful of because what what typically happens is Bob will contribute stuff and then I will work on it and it basically becomes this amorphous blob. The Bob is putting in... He has... um, You obviously know what a cathode ray oscilloscope is. Yeah. He has this code to draw some of the phenomena in a cathode ray oscilloscope, which is really beautiful. I mean, it's beautifully done. It has jitter. It has like, um, like l- not lens flare, but the, you know the effect of the cathode ray. You know, it's bright at one point and then yeah. it has kind of Gaussian around it. Very well done. Not particularly well mathematically optimized, though. And in fact, I think I'm probably going to be contributing to the code base in terms of a series of yeah, relatively simple yeah, optimizations, yeah. which I think in large part, I mean, Apple gives you a lot of that with Xcode, the their development environment. It basically points to the bits of the code that are are slow and says fix these basically yeah. uh yes yes so i'm yeah i'm very in fact i emailed bob and i said look if there are other parts of the code that you feel you've contributed to heavily by all means stake them you know stake yeah. them as yours as yeah. well Just as long as we can keep them in here yeah know. no i mean i'm i've i've tried as much as possible to evangelize bob's work associated with yeah. identifying it and saying, you know, this guy has done great work here. Yeah. And I'm really very mindful of basically all his contributions. I mean, you know, it's got him great a to have a collaborator, a collaborator. Exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah and I'm very awesome. receptive to it. And I feel almost indebted basically to a lot of yes. Bob's work because he's changed the simulation fundamentally. Yeah. I mean, I've had to do a lot of work too. In fact, a lot well, of, he, he's like, a collaborator at this point. Yeah. A lot of our yeah. interactions have been Bob yeah. will write some code and then I will rewrite and integrate and simplify it and move yeah. it around a bit. And I think that works very well, but I certainly don't want him to lose track of his work yeah. and influence in that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's so, his problem. I mean, actually, I mean, if it's important to him, then he can make sure that happens. Yeah. If it's not important to him, then he can ignore it and just do the work. Yeah. There is... I mean, I guess my long-term hope is that Bob will, you know, find work. <laughs> well, what is his long-term hope? I don't know. I mean, yeah, it, well, maybe he doesn't. I, maybe he's quite happy the way it's working right now. I, I, he, it's interesting, actually, because you this got a guy to give him a computer. Hell, yeah. he's doing great. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess it is interesting because there's this in parallel to my working with Bob. He is working on this whole. What is it? It's from, it's some strange, it's, oh, it's welfare to work. I think that's the term. So W2W that the UK is doing. So, I mean, in the UK, perhaps, well, no, I mean, that's not fair. In the US, in large parts of the US as well, the unemployment, particularly associated with, you know, educated labour, is really very phenomenal. In fact, I heard an account of people working at um, the Amazon 
boxing facilities, you know, where they pack all these Amazon things before they send them out. And we use Amazon quite heavily. We Amazon Prime. Yeah. In fact, we use it, funnily enough, mainly for the kinds of things that you would previously buy at the grocery store that don't perish. So, yeah. for example, you know, starch, laundry. Yeah, all the stuff that doesn't perish. Cat yeah. food. And it actually changes. I mean, my wife still does a majority of the shopping, but improves her shopping experience because yeah. she can, you know, look you at buy the stuff at the store that you need to yeah. get because it, you know, it's... It'll perish. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, that's about the way I am, too. I, yeah. I buy almost everything off the internet now. Yeah. It's just, uh, why get in your car and drive around and hope they have it or call, you know, it's just like that. It's, yeah. It's not, it. But the the problem associated with this is... In fact, that, I, I'm sorry, I, I just bought, I went through a hassle a few years ago. I like red shoelaces in my boots, and uh, and they were running out. And the last time I looked, I drove around all day trying to find the right shoelaces. It was totally fucked up this time i got on the internet and within third well within two minutes i found exactly what i wanted and ordered it and like two days later it shows up and that's that yes (laughs) you know it was a great experience go on (laughs) yes so while while my wife was away most recently i've had this ongoing problem associated with the comic book and it's really come to Ahead, if you mind the pun, <laughs> in the past two weeks, because I've realised that Anita, my artist, try as she might, cannot draw the Tom character. <laughs> and the sad thing is that actually, because I collect a lot of my correspondence with her on my iPhone, she actually sent me four pages through the week, which thankfully I didn't see until last night, because if I'd seen them first thing in the morning, I would have reacted very poorly. Where there's all the other characters are drawn perfectly... And then there's literally this curious and somewhat mutant form which moves between, you know, various points, which is this Tom character. I don't know whether we just, whether I get maybe a few more images from her and we part ways or what we do here. It's part actually, way, if you've made up your mind, you might as well part ways right now. Yeah. And you don't, and it doesn't even make a difference what you tell her either. I mean... Mm. You don't. I mean, you can't. There's all sorts of things you can be concerned with her well-being or. or. <laughs> well, the interesting thing is that the the part that interests me currently is associated with this written history that has a need for historical, you know, line art work. And I know there are people out that do it, particularly associated with kind of military line art. And I was thinking through the week with my wife away that there are actually these curious kind of sub-genre of extreme nerd, which were actually <laughs> satirized by my jackass friends. They refer to them as dollies, which is the, um, what's the fraction? It's like a sixth size militaria. I have so, no idea what you're even talking about. I'm talking literally militaria. about a, um, a, what, a foot-tall doll dressed like, I don't know, a panzer general or... Okay, um, a a foot tall, so highly detailed, uh, miniature, uh, okay, I got Soldier with clothes. Yeah, okay, yeah, all right. And I thought, (laughs) all the... This gets worse, Aaron. Folks listening in, you may never think of Tom the same way again. (laughs) 
So anyway, well, I mean, I just, God, God bless America. <laughs> so I thought to myself, I can actually generate a, a pictorial, a doll representation of this character in the continuation of the character in this novel. And I thought, this is a surreal thing. So I went online, and there are these sites. Yeah. In fact, <laughs> monkeydepot.com, folks, they're the, they're the sponsors of this week's show, where you can literally f- find the physical form, find the hands, find the feet, find the head, yeah. find the clothing, find the weapons, find the radio equipment, find the computer equipment. And I went through this thing. They even had a, a one-six scale monkey, which I bought just for the sake of buying <laughs> And you put all these things together in piecemeal form. Anyway, so my wife got back. And you get a real uh, replica sent to you in the mail six weeks later. Or no, something. no, 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 no. This happened almost instantly, Aaron. This oh, arrived. Just... Literally, I ordered it, and um, <laughs> okay. two days later, it arrived. Okay. Oh, okay. Oh, and I had cool. the benefit of actually showing my wife and putting it together because I really felt very How much dirty was it? I'm and curious. Uh, in total, it was $170. Okay. And I put this thing together, and my <laughs> wife was just... My wife actually enjoyed it a lot more than I did. In fact, she wants she wants to take it around and show people. <laughs> like, she, I, I have it in a box, but she wants to actually take it around and show people because she thinks it's phenomenal. And now I just feel like an extreme sense of dirty guilt associated with <laughs> purchasing this doll. Spending, you know, two hours online selecting the right shirt, the socks, the shoes, getting all of the elements correct. Uh, shall I, you're getting, you know, see, the problem is you're, you're beginning to wake up. <laughs> the problem is actually that I caught myself having, I only woke up once. It's part of your order. brain damage. It's the same yes. thing I feel about those uh, Dodge station wagons that are so cool you know no no the the new ones the i don't know what they call them but those fancy dodge station wagons that are really low and long and uh, they're just you know very sexy looking and whenever i see one my head just automatically turns Uh and lusts after it Uh (laughs) you know it's just you know it's just part of my brain damage yeah (laughs) So, yeah, down to the brown business shoes, my wife had a very wonderful time as I put this dolly together for her. And actually, I felt I felt really quite dirty having done it. The terrible thing was actually that I cut the shoelaces a little bit too short, so I couldn't actually do up his brown business shoes. But I thought to well, myself... What was this character? Brown bit was a guy in a suit or what? No, 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 no. <laughs> this, is, this is the... So, in, in the... In the Original field of chaos. You, well, you haven't posted a photograph of this uh, to the Stone Ape. I mean, I'm obviously, going to. yeah, please, please, yes. <laughs> I'll get the dolly out. Several, several photos, some close-ups of some yes. of the detail, some good cool. shots from a distance, yeah. uh, so we get a good sense I'll, of I'll just what we got here. I'll put my evil genius cat next to him for scale as there well. There you go. Oh, so. good idea. Okay. Yeah. Good yeah. idea. He, he can gnaw on the dolly. Oh, I can't wait to see this. This is going to be. This crazy. is really beyond perversion, Heron. It really is yeah, quite a. Yeah. Well, no, but it's just standard operating procedure. It's not that weird, really, is it? You think so? No, you don't. I think the. No, look, believe me, I actually feel dirty talking about it. But the, 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 thing, <laughs> the thing about it yeah, is. Yeah, but it's so good. Don't you realize how good it is that you feel guilty about it? 
I mean, really, can't you just identify with that? Don't. I mean, yeah, you feel guilty. You should feel guilty. You're right. You, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> well, when when we are when we are mummified in the volcanic eruption, and basically they come through it and they find the eight hundred neatly painted toy soldiers <laughs> and the trolley. <laughs> Yeah, well, they're going to have a lot of fun trying to figure what the fuck these people were doing anyway. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, not see, I think the thing is, enough. see, the thing is with, with what's coming up, and, and it's it's already here now. It's primitive, but you know, if you want to do that shit, you make your own. It's very, very strange, but it's a whole. It's an online phenomenon that I've just. I mean, my my yeah. jackass friends created a DVD. What two, three years ago now? Called was it called Roman Sausage? I think it was called. No, that was the production. I can't recall what it was called. But they did like a ten-minute skit associated with what they called dollies, which were these you know foot-tall creatures with the you know with the various militarism. <laughs> There's also a documentary associated with a guy who suffered brain damage and created his own world with these. You know, characters in them <laughs> yeah, play actors' yeah. life. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I think now I'm on their mailing list. Unfortunately. <laughs> uh oh. So yeah. Uh oh. Well, but that's yeah, that's just it's all part of the process, you know. Like I say, I, I I still have got all these old behaviors, and you know that are still there that have been in me from the beginning were programmed in as a child and uh, and those are still there they're not nearly as powerful as they used to be and i usually catch them if they're getting me in trouble <laughs> but yeah. but uh you know but it's been a long road yes yes brain damaged language monkeys getting in rehab <laughs> <laughs> or having those experiences that remind them that they need more rehab. <laughs> well, we'll always, I'll always be in rehab. I, I, I don't think I'll ever get rid of all the bullshit that was stuck in my head. But, you yeah. know, I've done okay. I mean, I've done as good as I can anyway. Hmm. Well, that's not, not true. Actually, I'm pretty fucking lazy. I probably could have done a lot better <laughs> if I was more dedicated. But uh, It is interesting, actually. I've been thinking a lot associated with momentum recently because it's something that I find, yeah, I, I, I almost have like a stationary guilt that I just have to keep on, you know, doing, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah, that's part of, um, yeah, I think that's part of all of our programming. That's, that's actually something this year that I've been dealing with is this idea of not having any agenda, you know, of just actually being trying experimenting with the concept of being totally fulfilled right now mm. and not having to do anything that everything is just right <laughs> yeah have you seen the kickstarter associated with soylent no at all? no but is is it in fact what that name implies yeah it's well, except it's not not it's, people it, it's just it's yellow it's yellow excuse me it's yellow in color Okay, and but it's not people, right? It's no. it's uh, just some kind of. No, I'll have to look that up. Yeah, they they are doing quite well with the Kickstarter. Ah, and and it's basically just that. It's just a, an ideal. It's like human chow, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'll check that out. And the, the psychological the, the, um, the thing that they've been tracking most is actually the psychological reaction for doing it for a long period of time. 
Like the thing that they've really noticed. And is are they people, actually claiming that they've solved this? That really you can live on this stuff? Well, is, is that they have people claiming? that have done it for like multiple weeks. No, oh, no, but I mean, you're talking about thirty years. They haven't obviously been yeah, around yeah. for that length of time. But I mean, are they claiming that that this doesn't? I mean, apparently shouldn't require anything else. This should do it. Apparently, that seems to be what yeah, they're claiming. Yeah. Well, it seems pretty obvious. It's probably not that difficult, actually. We've done it for dogs quite well. We ought to be able to do it for humans. <laughs> yes. I think the thing that seems to be most concerning to people, I mean, it's the psychology, which is the strangest thing. Oh, yeah. It turns, it, we're fueling the body instead of this big social thing we've built around food. Yeah. yeah no, the, no, exactly. The, this, yeah. Is, this is the whole, this is the reason that they're actually doing this, this, Testing is that the only obstacle that they see is human psychology. Yeah, that's the big obstacle. Imagine no restaurants, no kitchens, no sinks, no garbage disposals, no refrigerators, no ovens. Mm. None of that. No industry around food. Nothing. It's just a, a cabinet full of little cakes <laughs> with pretty little flowers on them or something. So what, they, what they're doing is it's fluid. I mean, oh, okay. it's out of yeah. you, adds water. Okay, well, whatever, whatever form it's in. I think in the long run, it should be more pal- – it should be sort of cool. You know, like I say, a little, like little chocolates. That, yeah, I think know. if it was – I mean, the interesting thing is when I saw it and it was yellow – yeah. I immediately thought, oh, it probably has a banana flavor to uh, it. Or it could be like cornbread. Yeah. God, I love cornbread. I haven't had cornbread in decades. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I'll have to go out and get some. It's funny, actually, because it's a completely... The only time I had cornbread in my youth was through my American stepmother. Ah. In fact, she introduced me to blueberry muffins and cornbread. Ah, well, These were two foods her. that I <laughs> really? never had yeah. contact with. Um, she didn't introduce me to chili with cornbread, which is a phenomenon that well, I a whole, Yeah, that's a whole different thing. Yeah. But and cornbread, is, can, of course, can be quite different from one recipe to another. Certainly, yeah. Uh, you can actually have quite savory cornbread, and then you can have sweet cornbread. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I mean, cornbread with sweet corn in it. I mean, you can have a wide variety of cornbread. <laughs> what we found um, in Vegas was, um, oh, it's the name of a Sopranos episode as well. What are they called? Johnny cakes, which are cornmeal pancakes. Uh-huh. And they are like the combination of the cornbread phenomena with a pancake, and uh-huh. they are uniquely delicious uh-huh. because it's like cornbread that's kind of caramelized on the top and the bottom uh-huh. in the pancake uh-huh. making yeah. process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds good. <laughs> and we used to actually, on a Sunday, go specifically for Johnny cakes at a particular restaurant because they were so good. And they're small as well. You don't need... You know, they're not pancake size. They're actually smaller and just yeah. as filling smaller because they're cornmeal. And unfortunately, the chef that made them left and the new guy started adding cream corn to them, yeah. which Ugh. just completely yeah, ruined. Was, yeah, changed the whole thing. Yeah. And then my wife actually got into it. She, she would get cornbread mix and you just treat it like pancakes. Um, you just treat it like a yeah. you know, a pancake and make it as if you were making pancakes. But yeah. use the and that works. Mix. It yeah. Worked yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, all of that will be behind us. This whole culture of food and, and feeding behavior and sociability and all that shit in a reasonable world probably wouldn't exist. That'd be a kind of pornography. So they have they have some like journal references online from people that have done it for multiple weeks. Yeah. And the psychology is really very interesting. They've identified what they call the terminator period, <laughs> which is basically after about two weeks 
when people realize that actually this is it <laughs> that they no, their whole phenomena associated with eating yeah is just it's it's removed from their life so they the, the intellectual time that was yeah. spent the oh, energy yeah. the involvement yeah. the yeah. pornography is all described, gone yeah it's all it's gone. all gone yeah they got extra a lot of extra time yeah yeah, a lot of extra mental space, too, yeah. Well, that's really the way I live. I, I eat almost the same thing every day. I eat a salad. I alternate between salad and soup. Mm. And uh, it's one or the other, plus a protein drink. And mm. it's really boring, you know? But I like them individually. I mean, they're okay. I mean, there's nothing wrong with them. They taste good. <laughs> but But it's just the same goddamn thing. It's just not anything I ever think about. You know, it's just, it's one or the other of those things. That's so, it. <laughs> my wife, as she was leaving, somehow, I think actually when we were in um, Sonoma, which is in the North Bay, we went to one of the first Ben and Jerry's on the West Coast. And they actually had Ben and Jerry's recipe book, which we'd never seen before. And my wife has made a couple of ice creams from the recipe. Mm-hmm. And the one that we like is actually a blueberry ice cream, which is really, really nice. And it's actually very, it's high cream, but small density because the blueberries take most of the the density of it. But the thing that we found with it is that we can only have very small servings. It's like the antithesis of ice cream. Yeah, right. Basically, yeah. in that yeah. regard. Yeah, you have a little tiny bowl. Because you, it's so you know. unbelievably creamy and yeah. enjoyable that you just you, you have that experience in a small portion. Yeah. Which, funnily enough, I think was part of the whole initial Ben and Jerry's phenomena until they started producing these larger and larger containers and serves and what have you. Yeah. You know, that's the thing is that in the few, I mean, the, the, what. The physical form, whatever we're eating, is in may be irrelevant. We could make it taste like a filet mignon, medium rare, yeah. you know, or a chocolate candy, or a spaghetti, you know, a plate of spaghetti, yeah. you know. But it would all be artificially created and uh, and giving us just the nutrition we want. And that may be a trivial thing to do. It's just about you know, give it to me in a cake. Or give it to me as a steak. What do you want? <laughs> I I find I can do that mentally. I mean, I, I find myself particularly, you know, there, there are various things that you can only get in Australia and various smells and various textures of food that you can only get in Australia. Chocolate in Australia, for example, is different than chocolate in the rest of the world. Ah. It has a higher melting point. So the taste and experience associated with chocolate in Australia texture is almost like there's almost initially not a glass-like texture but like a plastic-like texture uh-huh. which is very different but actually produces quite a, an interesting experience well it's its own yeah unique mm-hmm. experience exactly. yes but i also find myself i can i can i have a taste memory that i can take to you know tastings and foods that you know my grandmother for example uh used to make these what were called I think they were called rock biscuits in Australia. We call them I guess rock cookies here. Which were very dense with bits of dried fruit in them. And really the fruit was the predominant the dried fruit was the predominant flavour. So you would have like a little bit of flour and I'm sure there was potentially some vanilla essence in there. But most of it was actually getting the little bits of fruit, you know, and if you liked 
In Australia, they're called currants. They're very, very small, like raisins. They would give really sharp things, and then you bit a bit of orange peel and these kind of things. Yeah. So, you know, within one of these, you would have, you know, potentially five different randomly selected flavors. <laughs> and I've, I've never had them since. I occasionally have yeah. things that are very like that subtly in some way, but nothing is actually like the way that they were. And the density yeah. was really interesting. They had a moisture to them, which made them, even though they were quite dense, less dense than, you know, if they'd been dry, and then they would have been pretty horrible, I'm sure. Um, but, yeah, all these kind of things are really... It interests me because um, in my grandparents' house in, in South Australia as well, <laughs> they have a lot of wattles. So that smell is very unique, yeah. the smell of that flower. And I found my grandfather um, kept his soldering iron in a suitcase, and when I went back, it was really the only item from my grandfather that I wanted. So I have this, this suitcase... But the thing about it is it's full of this wattle pollen because it was out in his shed, which basically was right under a wattle and filled with pollen, you know, progressively through the year. So in order to have that experience, I can close my eyes and open the suitcase and physically mm. smell, yeah. you know, my grandparents' house and have those, you know, kind of <laughs> memories That's still awesome. there. Yeah. yeah, That's powerful stuff. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah, I, I have this thing with burnt toast. I don't know what it is. Apparently, there's something. I have some good memory from very early on about burnt toast because every mm. time I smell it, I just it feels so good. It just brings me back to something, yes. <laughs> you know, that I have associated with nice. <laughs> yeah, but the bread of your youth is very different to the bread of today. I'm sure. Well, burnt burnt toast <laughs> pretty smells much smells like burnt toast I yeah, think I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> yes I think I'm pretty well out of topics here. okay I think I've covered most do you have anything you want to throw out there? Mm, nope nope um, well Actually, one thing it dawned on me that I think maybe I should model my own Gendo work after model. Ra I listened to one of your model railroad radio podcasts. Which one? Uh, I think that was the one of the most re one of the more recent yeah, ones. Yeah, one, I think the second, not the latest, but the one before. Second that. to last, yes. Yeah, I didn't listen to the whole thing. <laughs> How many hours did you listen to? Well, <laughs> I sampled a bunch of things mm -hmm. in there, but I I, I spent a, a total of maybe twenty minutes listening okay. to it. Yeah. And what was what were your thoughts? Well, my thought is uh, that it's a small but rabid audience, and that's all anybody can hope for. That's you know that that Gendo, uh, I can model it after that. You know, well, there there are people out you there. You say it's you say it's a small audience, but it's more than a hundred thousand. Well, I know, but I mean, yeah, that's a that's what I'm getting at is that that's a huge. You know, when you consider the population of the planet, if it's a tenth of one percent of humanity, that's a lot of people. <laughs> so, okay, let, let's explore this because I I have really heavily crafted model rail radio, and I'm always interested in someone who's not a model railroad enthusiast yeah. what, what qualities what qualities in particular did you like uh nothing in particular i mean i i, I listened to it um and i again if if i was into model railroading i probably would have found it fascinating but i mean in terms the, the techniques that i use are primarily associated with 
Well, but I don't care about. Yeah, no, you did a fine job. uh, Yeah, of of hosting it, and and, yeah, I I thought that's all fine. The trick is just not to make it boring. I mean, I think that's the the real trick is. Well, no, you can't. No, no you can't. I don't think you can. Well, you can help on that, but it was it was boring to me. Of course, you know, because I just don't give a shit about it. Yes, you know, so it's just that simple. I mean, I listen. I was listening to it for a different reason. Mm. You know, and so that reason it wasn't boring because I I wanted to hear what was going on. You know, mm. and, and and who these people were. I looked at the pictures of the people. You know, and on the you know the subscribers list, and mm-hmm. uh, it's a you know it, again it's a it's a one thing that that a small percentage of human beings have in common, but mm. it's something for some reason they care about, and uh, and that that's a powerful thing. You know, yes. if you can and get, it's immediate the words can, model rail radio. You yeah, know exactly. What yeah, yeah, like. yeah. That's where you're lucky. I don't know how I can. What, get, well, I'm thinking it may be the voice in your head or something. I, I need something really simple that says it. And I don't know. I mean, Gendo probably. Well, Gendo is possible. It doesn't mean anything, but it then becomes its own definition. So well, except. You don't have the phenomena of people coming across this and immediately going, I will like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 I know. Yeah. Well, Gendo, a way of language, actually gets to it. But, but in any case, the idea that, you can, that if you can somehow pull together the people who are interested in an idea, that you can do something with that that's useful in the world. Yes. And, uh, and, and Gendo certainly, I think, I think probably has a wider appeal I mean, depending upon how it's marketed, then model rail radio. I don't know. I mean, well, I, I don't know either. <laughs> my, I mean, my view is that model rail radio, from you know, fifteen-year-old kids to cancer doctors to retirees to people that have yeah, cancer, it's a broad range. Of, yeah, yeah. Typically men, but also you yeah, know, yeah. What percentage of, of them are women? Um, in terms of people that have appeared on the show, I would say. Uh, I was thinking more of your listeners. Oh, well, that's always difficult. I don't know, actually. I've not, I've not done the Facebook group by, by you know, gender. It seems to me I recall seeing one woman's picture on, on there. Yeah, it's probably someone's wife, too. No, I don't remember. That, but, I mean, I looked at it because I noticed yeah. that I think there was only one. Yeah, that was probably my wife, actually, Aaron. She's no, 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 it wasn't her. It was, <laughs> somebody, it was somebody else. Okay. It is interesting, though, because I think the main thing is respect. I mean, I think that's the in creating that format of show, I have to have respect both for well, the listeners. But you also need also to be knowledgeable. You've, you've obviously I, spent some time. No, but, but you, that just happens here. Okay, so phenomenon. you've learned it from, well, but you've spent in, you've put a lot of hours in on this. Well, yeah, but I mean that's that, and you've that's learned, and you pay, yeah, and you pay attention, <laughs> so you've learned, yeah. But that's that's crucial. That's one of the first things I got when, you know, listening to that that thing. Uh, it was the one where the guy who was uh, about to begin his thing, but he wasn't sure where he was going to be living, and the British guy, yeah, 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 that one, yeah, and. Um, and I thought you handled it well, and it's clear that you know your business. You know that you you know what's going well, on, you. and you know, yeah, it's thank just it's just clear. You know? yeah, so I think, in that yeah. sense, see, that's the thing is, as I what I'm taking away is that I need to define Gendo very clearly. 
I think your relationship with Gendo and my relationship with Model Rail is very, very different. Oh, yeah. This is the yeah. difficulty that you almost, I mean, the way that I've framed Model Rail Radio is firstly that I'm in no way an expert and yeah. that actually my role is to facilitate a conversation. Yeah, but you, yeah, and that's, that's marketing. In fact, uh, you are an expert compared to most of the people who listen to you. You do know a lot about this stuff. You do. That's that is perception, not reality. Unfortunately, Uh, you you no, it's not. You know how to use language that I don't know how to use. Yeah, but the thing about it is that I'm not exact in my use of the language. Okay, all right, yeah, okay, yeah. I'm still, which actually I think appeals to a group of listeners. Yeah, and and I'm that way too. I I know how to do that too. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Right. So. Yeah, it is, a, it is an interest. I mean, I haven't done a model rail radio. Actually, the last one I recorded was on the 20th of July, so I have done one relatively recently. But in terms of actually audio editing, it takes a lot of time. I got down to edit about an hour and a half last night of show, but most of the time, unfortunately, is taken up with work. The reason that I bring up, I mean, for folks listening, because model rail radio listeners account for a number of our listeners as well, the reason that I find it easier to drop a stone ape, so to speak, in the feed is just because you and I have similar speech impediments and basically I can crash edit this far faster than I... Because Model Rail Radio, when you have multiple participants, everyone has different speech impediments. Yeah, that you have yeah. To correct for. Well, no, you don't have to. You're just so anal retentive. No, 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 no. You need to. No, people notice it. When well, so I've they notice edited, it. So what? No, That's the way people the talk. Participants, the participants actually find a great degree of comfort in the fact that even if they say um and pause and oh, you cut all that shit out. I, yeah. Oh yeah. See, I, I that, that would be like much nicer. Well, that's what I did. You know, I've done that for one of my podcasts, and. Uh, yeah. Fuck, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to take waste my time doing that shit. It's, well, you're right. It's much better without all the ums and the ahs and your knows and all that crap. Mm. But uh, fuck that. I'm not going to take the time to fix that. If somebody else wants to do it, cool. That'd be great. But I spent probably 20 hours editing an hour and 20-minute podcast down to, like, 58 minutes. Well, you get better over time, obviously. I mean, obviously, if you do enough of these things... No, well, yeah, so instead of 20 hours, I might get it down to two hours. I put up a few YouTube clips of me doing the editing of Bottle Rail Radio just to illustrate to people how completely automated the process was. I mean, in terms of doing it. I mean, not automated in terms of my... Still takes time. You have to to be there and babysit it, don't you? Yeah. yeah, no, no, no. I mean, it, uh, automated here is to appear to an external. Well, that would be here. nice. Yeah, yeah. You, you should yeah. be able to do a lot of that, but you still have to sit there and babysit. You're not going to trust the machine to do it. <laughs> not I, yet. I guess my I guess my <laughs> point about it is that I, I mean, I've edited I've edited Stone Apes literally half asleep. I've woken up at four with indigestion, and and Stone Ape has emerged from that with neatly written notes at about five. And then I've gone back to bed. I mean, I've actually had that experience on one occasion doing that. Yeah. I cannot do that with Model Rail Radio. I need to at least be with some participants. I can actually, yeah. but with most of the participants, people just don't have natural like radio speaking voices, and no. I'm mindful of but, that. But but what's wrong with just allowing it to be the way it is? Because it's actually very difficult to listen to, and I'm actually a stickler for being yeah. ease of listening. And I actually really I feel that very. Well, strongly. I agree with you. If you can do that, great. If you can, yeah. 
I'm not going to do that. Yeah. You know, if somebody else wants to do that with my stuff, that'd be great because I'm really embarrassed about the shit <laughs> I put out. I mean, I understand yeah. that it's terrible from that perspective, but it's what it is, and that's what you get unless you want to do the editing because I guess, I'm yeah, not going to do it. <laughs> my view with Bubble Rail Radio is that that actually probably accounts for between. 10 to maybe 20% of the audience is actually the editing of the show because I know people, yeah. and I've done this actually, I've actually listened to shows in the car with my wife and I've said to her, to hear it raw versus the editing, it is the difference oh, yeah. between listening to like professional radio and just listening yeah. to people Absolutely. recording yeah. themselves. Yeah, you know? it's, it's a world of difference. I've been aware of that from the beginning. It's just, like I say, it's just, it's just too much work. Yeah, I'm I mean, even even in the details of kind of noise removal, I'm relatively anal. In fact, it was funny. I released the well, I that you can do. I mean, I still do that kind of stuff, but, yeah, that, but that's all. I, that's automated. I just drop it on level later, and that no, no, but no, no, that that does still, part of it. Well, I mean, that's yeah, it'll still first. mess up some of the noise. So yeah, I, w- I had to chat with some twenty somethings, which I actually put out in the Stonehead feed associated with their artificial life views, and. Um, that I did a lot of cleanup with, and the guy was actually very mindful of the amount of cleanup work that I'd done because yeah. he said, you know, it sounded far better than and he was using <laughs> yeah. some old computer mic and all this other yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, so. yeah. No, it'd be great uh, if I could put out really nice, clean stuff without the, especially the, you know, it's embarrassing because I'm stupid. I, I just, I hate listening to myself, you know? <laughs> yeah. But it's just too fucking much trouble to go through and, cut out all the you knows and uh and you know and mm. false start i mean how many how many times do i start a sentence <laughs> that little right there <laughs> you know the, all that shit goes out with me <laughs> it is interesting actually because that kind of particularly the rep the repetition in the sentence and these kind of things yeah. are stuff that i just cut automatically yeah and i'm really i really oh, it's, it's so much better yeah, yeah yeah it's just so much better uh, to just hear what what a person is saying Instead of <laughs> you know, all the hemming and hawing and, and yeah. figuring it out and you know yeah yeah because yeah, basically to... in real time you're trying to you're figuring out what you're going to say as you say it exactly yes but see that's what I like about it <laughs> you know it is a phenomenon I mean you, you do I mean I do wonder particularly because I've never actually had success with any people that I've known in squish well picking up any of my podcasts. I suspect I've had one co-worker listen to one partial recording of Stone Ape, and that's been about it. I do actually wonder if more people do listen to it that I interact with. They <laughs> just don't want to talk about it. Well, <laughs> the familiarity with certain stories of mine that have only come up through Stone Ape, I think, probably indicates the... I almost need, like, a secret handshake, you know? Yeah. Or a secret, you know, what have you, in order to, to gather that. But I think the interesting thing, I mean, particularly with our conversations, is as exactly as you've noted, if we were two people who had met in, you know, at a Starbucks or something, there's no way that this body of work would have actually gone no, on. No, 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 no way. It's indicative of actually... Well, you our- shouldn't say that. I mean... Maybe it's possible, but <laughs> highly unlikely anyway. Yeah, it's it's indicative of our mutual brain damage that we've actually been able to carry this thing on for, you know, three years plus now. I mean, although we took, you know, a year and a bit off. I mean, we've the, the funny thing is actually I've gone back and listened to some of I've gone back and listened to like show nine and things like that recently. 
because I actually can't remember recording them and they weren't on my yeah. iPhone in repetition. So I've actually had to go back and, and I've listened to them. And it's, it's They're very different, Heron. Really? Surprisingly different. Really? You well, actually I had respect go back and for me when we first started recording. <laughs> you actually listened <laughs> intently as I told my stories. And had my <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's I'm good. Sorry, uh, I'll, I'll have to go back and listen to one of those. It was very strange. I'm like, what? This is so real. <laughs> was I calling you Mr. Barbelay? No, no, no. You, you had a degree of respect for me, a degree of existential respect that made me realize that. This that guy doesn't know you very well. It. Yes. This I've got this road. guy. I've got this guy conned. <laughs> completely eroded. No respect. Joe the drama, no topic. One thing I wanted to talk about is. <laughs> Which it wasn't in my notes, but oh. it has come up. Is that I I did a tiny bit of editing to the last show. I literally removed about thirty seconds. Is that take, all? You didn't take out all that stuff about no, about, really. Okay, no, I left it in, and I did so because actually, um, so I mean, for folks listening in, did, yeah, I would uh, have taken out like thirty minutes of that. Yeah, it's interesting, actually. No, I really, I needed some solid catharsis associated with um, that discussion, and I think there was only a small. Have you bit heard from of, him about? Oh, no, that? I've heard from her though. I've heard from Marie Camacho, uh, and she, and she Camacho, heard what you had to say. Yeah. Okay. And she, she, both she and her boyfriend Justin are still actively interested in working with Noble Lake. Nothing has changed there. Justin has slightly modified his LinkedIn page, so it's not quite as... But there's still a thing associated yeah. with his work with Nopalate. But for me... See, I'd be thankful if anybody was promoting my work for any way. And if anybody calls me and asks me questions, I would tell them whatever I think is true. <laughs> Yeah, I, I have actually I have actually given references to people that have worked on Noble Ape and actually had recruiters yeah. call me up and ask me questions yeah. about. Yeah, people. absolutely. That, you know, and um, and quite frankly, and the fellow got the job. I mean, basically, I I was very, it was funny actually because the person the recruiter was calling from, I guess Central Time, so it was nine there and it was seven a.m. in Vegas. And I was actually, my I was with my wife, we had to go post something, so I was up at that time in the morning. And when I said, you are completely asleep, yet you were able to have a coherent and very positive conversation associated with this fellow's work, even though you were, you know, your eyes were barely open. And I said, yeah, it was quite strange. But he got the job based on that. He's, yeah. you know, he's been in wherever he is. And somewhere I used to have a, a roommate long time ago, a, a <laughs> woman. We lived down Manhattan Beach, and I played guitar. I was, I was okay. And, and she used to invite some of her friends over and then make me play guitar. Oh. And it used to really piss me off. You know, that she, and then she'd sit there you know, with this big smile on her face like, I'm so cool, man. I know this guy. <laughs> you know? And I used to really resent that. And then I, I don't know, somewhere along the line, I started thinking, well, why the hell should I resent it? I like playing. It's fun. And she gets a lot of enjoyment out of it. And so what the hell am I pissed about? You know, that she's mm. sitting there, uh, you know, getting some recognition or thinking she's getting some recognition for whatever she had to do with it. But anyway, it changed me a lot because I, I didn't resent her anymore for doing that. I just uh, thought, you know, uh, 
that's nice. You know, she likes it. Mm. <laughs> and I, and that's why I sort of think about this. If someone's abusing, I mean, again, you, if it becomes a problem, you can always deal with it. But I'd be flattered if somebody is, you know, showing off my work to make them look better. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess my view is that. Um, I mean, this goes back to the whole discussion associated with Bob Bottram putting copyrighted work into Noble Ape. I mean, my view is that the active contributors of Noble Ape are l- literally almost saint deity like. Yeah, in well, my they're view. your collaborator. They're yeah, yeah, right. Those are people you can deal with. The rest of the people are just some people out there. <laughs> Yes. Now, anyway, I, it was interesting, actually, folks. Well, what did to... Marie have to say about that, what you said? I thought I was shocked at it, actually. <laughs> you were, actually, because yeah. I, I said I just thought it was some something. Editing. I thought it was something that should be taken up personally with him instead of, you know, publicly. If it's somebody, if somebody is... pisses me off, I'm going to yeah. go to them and deal with it. I, I wouldn't do it here. Yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon, actually, because we obviously feel this medium as something distinctly different. I mean, my my only concern <laughs> really with this whole phenomena was associated with the fact that there was some, you know, additional details that Marie had, had passed me and I didn't feel were necessarily yeah. appropriate airing. But aside from that, basically, my... My motivation, and I think actually a lot of this has come from where I work, is that we, I mean, professionally, we have to be brutally honest to each other. It's almost like a kind of bastardizing. No, I think that's uh, important. Truth. Absolutely. And my view is that um, if, if people are listening to this, either presently or in the future, with the view that they want to um, participate in, in Noble Aid, then... They need to appreciate that um, this is the bit that I didn't get to record last week. I am sure, and I'm honestly sympathetic to the fact that for someone like Marie Camacho's boyfriend, and he said this to me in correspondence, the body of work in Noble Eight could be quite intimidating. And that's not intentional. That's just the nature of a project that's existed since 1996. That's had kind of continuous development. That shows that, that he actually understands something. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm actually, my view is actually that if people break Noble Ape and if people tinker with it and it falls apart and then they email me and say, I changed this thing and now nothing works, what's wrong here? If you actually get your hands into it, if you yeah. actually start tinkering with the code and removing stuff and throwing stuff about. Then you might learn something. That's exactly my point. (laughs) The the fear element associated with the project. And of course, this is associated with the project, but this is also associated with me as a person. Now, independently of my correspondence with Marie, Justin has also emailed me um, associated with, um, you know, what I'm doing here with you and the fact that, you know, this is certainly within his sphere, um, you know, motivating uh, some interesting discussion and what have you. I don't think this is indicative of um, this discussion being particularly, you know, successful or us doing anything more than just kind of nattering on about our own particular <laughs> subjects occasionally overlapping, this kind of stuff. I mean, I'm very low-key with that, but I really want to emphasize that the people who have gotten their hands in, I mean, I'm working with a guy at Apple currently like that, but historically the people who've worked on Noble Ape, most of them, um, you know, I'm friends with them on Facebook. 
Um, but they don't really keep in contact with me. Pedro Ferreira is a good example of this. Pedro Ferreira is a fellow who um, works at CERN in Switzerland. And I he picked up Noble Ape, I think, in about 2004, and he worked on it pretty solidly until about 2006 or 2007. And he actually got sick of me, really fundamentally. He actually realised that there were <coughs> eccentricities in Noble Ape which were indicative of problems that I had as a person, mm-hmm. which he didn't put explicitly, but he kind of basically faded away with a series of we should do this, we should do this, we should do this. And then he just washed his hands of the yeah. project. I've had some correspondence with him since. I mean, we are still relatively friendly. My hope is one day we'll meet, potentially. But I realised particularly associated... There was a period before he got to CERN when he was still doing a master's program where I think he was still a lot more interested in Noble Ape as a kind of conceptual thing. He did a lot of stuff with ApeScript. He wrote his own, you know, his own cognitive simulation in ApeScript and did a variety of things there. But I think when he got to CERN, he realized that software engineering was exactly that. It, it, it was an industry. It was industrialized. And a lot of the eccentricities in Noble Ape are actually personal eccentricities that I have versus the way software is written in industry in particular. And that, I think, soured him to the development in some quite fundamental way because he was doing real scientific programming at CERN. And, you know, You've only got so many hours a day, exactly. and uh, you make your choices. You know? But uh, it's interesting as well, uh, Riddle Pentapali, who is the Indian who I gave the reference to, similarly was doing a master's program. Well, no, he, was do- he wanted to do a master's program with Noble Aid. But what he ended up doing was working on a, a project called NEAT, and I've met the fellow who created a fellow called um, uh, Ken Stanley, who's at University of Central Florida, and he, within academic circles, Ken Stanley has been very successful getting these, you know, masters and PhD students involved with this project. And that was an interesting process as well, because Middle Pentapalli and I worked closely together. I mean, there was some overlap. There's actually an audio recording of, of Middle P and Pedro Ferreira talking to me, kind of 2006 time frame, And they were both still involved with Noble Ape at that time. But they for whatever reason, realised, you know, I'm Riddle P, I assisted, I gave him a good reference associated with moving, and we talked a lot while he was dating his current his wife, um, and, you know, about characteristics associated with marriage and various other things. I mean, he's actually, in full circle, he's the Hindu that I spent a lot of periods talking with about reincarnation and this kind of stuff as well. But these people are temporal people. They work on Noble Ape for a period of time and then they don't, you know. Bob Mottram has continued on. I mean, my expectation was that Bob would stop working on Noble Ape like last year and he kind of did for a period of time. But he seems to be coming back full force now. Maybe he just needed to take a break or maybe actually... Just putting a better computer. Well, yeah. (laughs) But putting the copyrighted work in, I think, actually reminds him that he's making an active contribution that's going to be memorialized independent of academic writing and other things. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, my view is that Noble Ape is a thing that I have nurtured, but people can certainly get involved... (coughs) you know, do what they want with it. And I'm going to be more than happy to assist. I mean, that's basically my role. And, I mean, yeah, this goes out to Justin, this goes out to, you know, Marie, anyone else who wants to work on Noble Life. I mean, I think... Well, the thing we is have... to do something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, do it. Don't talk and, about doing and it. And don't, don't be scared once you've done something to give 
feedback or interact back or just ask questions. Yeah. I mean, when I first started developing Opalate, the most fun I had was with, you know, kids. I mean, I was 19 at the time, but, you know, 15-year-olds, 12-year-olds who were learning to program would get in contact with me. And it was at that stage sufficiently simple that they could actually interact with the code. Unfortunately, it's become increasingly complicated, even through my best intentions. Um, but, yeah, that was something initially that I really liked was talking to, you know, smart kids that were actually interested in programming. And Anyone who's interested in talking about the stuff I'm interested in talking about is somebody I want to talk to. <laughs> so I would imagine exactly. it's the same for you. Yeah. So I guess the conclusion <laughs> of the conversation last week, which we didn't have, was don't be intimidated, which almost works against what I was saying last week, and please do get in contact and please do you know, interact with the project as an organic thing. And if you need to take it away and do whatever you want and then show it to me after the fact, by all means do. I mean, there are so many ways that this interaction can take place, but you've just got to kind of put yourself in the thing in order to interact, you know? You have to have some ideas, actually. No, you don't, actually. Yeah, you do. you got to have some idea of what you want to change. This guy in Germany just runs the simulation for, you know, thousands of simulated years and he interacts we can have conversations and i give him a lot of respect for the stuff that he's done with no blade because okay, he's found well, he, uh, he does have a clear idea he's exploring exactly. <laughs> what you can do with it and documenting yeah. it i guess yeah. right yeah okay well so yeah. exactly yeah yeah the thing is to be clear about what you're doing yeah and yes. then but but also to be doing it <laughs> yes yeah, that's part of uh, what I need to find probably is a way for people to get involved with Gendo to actually do something meaningful. There's an interesting phenomenon which I'm going to actually put out there, Heron, where I think that you have a degree of formalism which probably works against your desire. Oh, uh, yeah, I, I know. I Yeah, I may, no, maybe I'll have to hire a front man. <laughs> well, I mean, you joke about that kind of stuff, but I think actually the process of hiring the front man, your formalism stops you from being able to do in some fundamental sense. Um, well, well, I don't know. I mean, that's part of what this whole year is about, you know? I mean, consider the, circumstances, now, yeah, consider the circumstances associated with this whole Anita process. Now, it could, it could be... The whole what we, process? The comic book artist oh, that I've oh, worked Anita, with. Oh, Anita, yeah. Right, okay, yeah. That, in a descriptive phenomena, caused you a great degree of, when we first described it and talked about it for, you know, two or three recordings, caused you a great degree of perturbation, your fear associated with potential failure and these kind of things. About about whose fear? I don't don't understand what you're talking about. Sorry, my wife has just come home. So We've got all kinds of sewing and other related stuff. No need to apologize. (laughs) Why? Heron's just saying, I don't need to apologize for your arrival. <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, I think this probably... Does this conclude the recording, Michelle, or are we... No, I can go in the other room. Okay, okay. So, the formalism associated with your concerns with hiring the the artist... The formal... Was, okay, well, the fact that you need to talk to someone... Oh, yeah, for me, I, yeah, that's just... Okay, yeah. You need, to, you need to do a series of yeah, things before to know I would that they actually, were exactly the right no, not No, no, no. I just need to feel comfortable that I can work with them. I assume that I can't. I assume... I go into every relationship assuming I'm talking to an unconscious language monkey. Yes. And their job is to convince me that they're not. 
and I can't do that in text. I need to hear their voice. I need to talk with them. Mm. So, do you need a physical interaction with them, or is it just no, talking? No, no. Actually, it's better to talk. Uh, yeah. No, I don't need. In fact, I think it would be worse. I'm more and more. I'm finding I really prefer this kind of communication. If you put get the monkeys involved physically, it just adds all sorts of layers of complexity that I just don't want to deal with. But if you have a front person. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, they represent you physically as well oh, as yeah, just yeah. I, Well, listen, that, that's, I, I mean, I'm aware of the problem. I, I'm aware of my, uh, my, even my, my, my whole speech style is, uh, you know, academic sort of, except for the obscenities that I throw in to show, show <laughs> no, that, that's I, very academic that I'm too, hearing. Aaron. That is, is very it? academic. Oh, oh okay. Too, yes. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I know I don't talk like uh, Anthony Robbins or, <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know, people who are, uh, who are in this business and being big about it. Yeah. Yes, but I don't think honestly. If if that's what what holds people back, then I don't need them right now. I can say I think my audience is small. I just want to find the people who can who can hear what what's being said, and get it. You know, and if the other thing stops it for some people, well, they're okay. The question is whether or not there are enough people out there that can get what I'm talking about. Enough to do something about it. Well, we'll see. It's interesting you mention... I don't even know the guy's proper name. It's Anthony Robbins? Yeah. Is that his name? Yeah. Because um, I think his style has become so cliched that people... Oh, it is now. I mean, that was 30 years ago. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, I don't know who's... I don't know what's going on today in that business, but the self-help guru business is still a big business. Uh, you know, and it's tied in with spirituality and Buddhism and all mm. sorts of shit. You know, so it's it's uh, and and meditation and uh, brain science and <laughs> holographic audio signals in your head. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it's a uh, it's pretty weird space these days. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I heard reference to Deepak. What is it, Deepak Chopra? Yeah, there's another one. He seems one. to be. Yeah. He seems to be the current one, I guess. It, oh, and I think he. Well, yeah, I guess he's or still. He fallen is. Down to well, I mean, he's been around for a long time. Yeah, he's been around for at least twenty years, and, and maybe yeah. longer than that. But he's he's one of the big. And Wayne Dyer, I guess, is still out there. Yeah, you know, and he's uh, he's sold a lot of books, given a lot of speeches. And your view is that you'll like these people? No, I'm just saying they were in the business of putting ideas into the world. Um, that change people's lives, yeah. So, it, so well, that's very in that extent. No, but not, I, I don't see myself. I don't want to do anything like what they're doing. I'm just saying that what they're attempting to do, and what they actually do for a small percentage of people, is get them to be responsible for creating their own stories. At least that's the way I talk about it. Hmm. I don't necessarily think I would think of any of those people in that light. They might oh, no, make no, people I, more, yeah. I think it's more about them providing their stories for people that need stories to be provided. <laughs> well, that's part to, of it, too. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's, there's a lot of ways to look at it. There, it's a very complex phenomenon. Yes. You know, yeah. But, again, they, they work for a small percentage of people. There are a lot of people who get caught up in the hype and, and the emotion and stuff and, and uh, but you know, a couple months later, they're pretty much back to wherever they were. <laughs> you know, but a few people 
come out transformed. It's, it's just still vanishingly small. That's the problem, is the, the way they've been doing this shit, and religion certainly hasn't worked any better, you know. Mm. And Buddhism, you know, great, you know, but we still don't have that many enlightened masters around, so... Uh, they're just... I don't know. I just think my my suspicion, and my hope is that I'll fall into this category too, is that actually the road to enlightenment requires seclusion, that which sure means that helps. basically yeah. the enlightened masters probably are out there. They're just sufficiently secluded that we don't have access to them. Well, I think once you've got that, you don't. You need the seclusion for a while to get to that space. Once you're there, you don't really need the seclusion. The seclusion is within you. You don't. You don't need it anymore. But it's. I can't imagine getting wherever the hell I am if I hadn't lived alone for the last thirty years. Yeah, but once you've once you've experienced the seclusion, what's what makes you go back into New York City, or what makes well, you move to a major metropolitan oh, area? Well, that's a, yeah. Well, there would have to be some fairly good reason for doing that. I don't know. I, I can't imagine. What maybe the theater district? I don't know. Uh-oh. <laughs> Yeah, that. But uh, yeah, if there's some reason, yeah, I mean, if I had my druthers, if I could live anywhere, I'd probably, you know, live up in the mountains somewhere, or mm. you know, who knows? There's all sorts of possibilities. But maybe I'd go to New York for a while. Why not? That could I be don't cool. Know. Have you been to New York? No, never have. Wow, Heron. Yeah, yeah and New York is a real phenomenon. I mean, it, oh, I yeah. think it's similar. You can get similar experiences in parts of San Francisco, but it's not really quite the same. No, I don't think. No, San Francisco's neat too, but it's not New York. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah know, the there isn't any. Just a Tokyo different... is another city, or or Hong Kong. Or London, you know, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I think um, it's funny actually. I haven't been to New. Uh, when was the last time I was in New York? Two thousand and one, I think. I was there just um, like what, March, maybe April. It's funny, actually, because my wife used to go to New York periodically, but I never went with her. Um, I think the last time she went was probably 2008, maybe 2009. But she went annually for at least three years, I think. Yeah, I've never been a traveler. I just... Yeah, Yeah, it's interesting, actually. We've talked about this previously, because I think travel is one of the most... um, I guess one of the things where, particularly when I've when I have friends that have young kids, I always say, you know, travel is really, particularly at a young age, I think is a really oh, amazing yeah. experience. Oh yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't have anything against it. I just have always been too poor to engage in it. You know, I so in terms of, what, in terms of reformation from this experience, I was listening recently, actually it was one of KMO's recordings with a fellow who's now based in Thailand, who's big on this kind of open source foundation thing, which can be actually modeled to a variety of things. And I think it basically means that you have a combination of kind of sponsors, donors, and, you know, and I don't know, begging, basically, panhandling at some level. And you create, you, support, you create an income and also an interest through that. And then part of what this guy does, I think, is, you know, seminars and talks and all this other thing. But um, it, do, it does strike me as an interesting model for survival, and you never really know how, how well they're doing. I mean, yeah. you never really well, get Well, it just has of, to be enough, that's all. Yeah. It just has to be enough to support you so that you can do what you want to do. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, I, don't, I certainly don't need a lot of money, but it, 
you know, it would be nice to have enough to be able to travel around, go to con- uh, conferences, and meet people, all the people I want to meet and hang around with. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that would I mean, be it is, fun. It is an interesting phenomenon because, I mean, certainly when I've talked about it with you, you've been positive on one side, but you still don't see the benefit of. Well, I haven't found. I haven't found. uh, I just haven't found the right combination of factors or a way to put them together that works for me. Mm. You know, I think there is a way. I I don't. uh, You know, I I think um, I just have to keep keep looking and being open and seeing how it's going to work. I don't like I say I don't like the model, the Wayne Dyer, Deepak Chopra model, the 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 guru who goes out and gives lectures and. Uh, charges you know thousands of dollars for weekend seminars. Although I can see doing weekend seminars for thousands of dollars for businesses. Yeah, you know I would have no problem doing that. Yeah, even my father did that. Yeah, actually. yeah. As yeah, an academic sociologist, yeah. he was still through the nineties able to do that, yeah. which always struck me as very strange because I guess I'd associated my father with a kind of antithesis of business uh-huh. on some fundamental level. Well, yeah, especially for the stuff I'm talking about, language and thinking and all those things. I mean, that's that would be relatively easy to put together in, in a format that makes sense to business. Mm. You know, it's like almost a no-brainer. But uh, again, doing it, yes. you know, and and actually, you know, marketing it, and you know, I mean, all that shit, that business shit, I just don't give a shit about that. Unfortunately, that's. That's a majority of. The oh, I know. That, that's what I mean. It's going to require other people because if it's up to me, I'm, it's not going to happen because I'm not interested in spending my time dealing with that. Yes, but what's what's the what's the initial match that starts the fire in this circumstance? Uh, meeting people, meeting the right people. I think that's a big part of it. I who are, who are willing I, to work for nothing initially in order well, to get who something are, in the Well, no, who are. I don't have any preconceptions about who I can collaborate with for what purposes. I'm just open to anybody who's interested in playing uh, this game called Saving Earth from the Homo sapiens. Mm. <laughs> you know, and whether you put it in the form of a religion or a business or a school or uh, a form of pornography or or theater or you know music or whatever. Uh, I'm doing stuff with language, you know, and it, I think, well, you've heard my story. I I believe so, yes. So when my wife got home, she let a moth into the apartment. Oh. And our cats have been leaping in the air and doing dive rolls and a wide variety of other things. Have they got it yet? I believe one of them does. He let it go briefly so he could jump up. John again, again, right? Yeah, that's much. Which I think, you know, animals at play are really just a phenomenon. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, but Aaron, I think we probably need to call it a night. Okay. I think it's reached that level. My throat has gotten that dry, and I think I'm just out of topics for the evening. Okay. We'll Always a again. pleasure. Bye bye. Next week. Mm-hmm. See you, Aaron. <laughs>